Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's up, Buffalo Fanatics? Josh Allen here. Just wanted to say, uh, go Bills. Oh, baby. What is up, Buffalo Fanatics? Z-Bot here with you. Live on the Buffalo Fanatics YouTube channel on a Monday night. And it can only mean one thing. It is the smoke break. So good to have you in tonight. Just 49 short days away from Buffalo Bills football. That's right. Seven weeks, seven touchdowns. I don't know what it is. I don't know if you're like me like this or not. But growing up, doing math throughout literally forever. I still do this. Elementary, middle, high school, all the way to to now. I always knew the multiples of seven better than any other number. Because seven points, touchdown, extra point. So we are seven touchdowns. We are seven weeks to the moment right now from Buffalo Bills kickoff in New Jersey against the Jets. Every week I start the show with this because every week you join me, we are one step closer to Buffalo Bills football, especially this week. We're just two short days removed from the start of training camp. And that's when you know things really start to feel real get to see the boys out on the practice field and uh really start dialing yourself in for the season right around the corner like i said at the top of the show so good to have you and we are packed up tonight with a lot of fun stuff to talk about uh throughout the show we're going to be doing a couple of different things we're going to be talking about tonight what i look forward to the most going into the 2023 buffalo Bills season prior to the start of camp here what i look forward to the most that excites me and what I foresee going forward into the 2023 season that puts a little bit of fear in me, something I fear for these Buffalo Bills, I fear as a fan. So we're going to talk about tonight what excites me the most about the 2023 Buffalo Bills and what scares me the most. We'll dive into that. Also, huge weekend for the box office, huge weekend. Barbenheimer, that was this past weekend, the release of both Barbie and Oppenheimer this past Friday. It was the most anticipated weekend of movies all year. And naturally, I went and saw both movies back-to-back. Got to share my thoughts on them with you because these are the two biggest movies of the year. They're fresh in my mind. I literally just saw Oppenheimer, got out of the theater about two hours ago. So that's fresh. And last night, we saw Barbie. We were supposed to see him back-to-back, my girlfriend and I. So we live in a city, so we walk to places like this, the movie theater or whatever. 
So anyway, we walk to the movie theater down the block, get there for the first leg of this. We're supposed to see Barbie and Oppenheimer back to back, like six hours worth of movies here. And we get to the movie theater. We go into the theater. We realize the seat we bought doesn't even exist. It's at that moment we find out we bought tickets to the wrong theater. There's another AMC on our block that we didn't even know existed. And not only did we not know it existed, it exists quite literally out of my front door. It's hidden inside of this, like, business park. You'd never know in a gazillion years that there was a movie theater in that place. So I'm walking all the way down Main Street here in Connecticut with a bowl, a bucket of popcorn and the soda, transporting that from one theater to the next. See Barbie... And then it comes to, we come to find out that seeing Oppenheimer afterwards, we got the wrong tickets for that one. The whole thing was a mess, so we had to see that today. Broke them up into two days, though, which was probably better. Either way, some both got to share my thoughts because I got, I got a lot to say, especially about one of them. Um, so that's going to be the bulk of the show tonight. We're also going to kick the show off tonight with the most pressing Bills news. And just a real damper, a real bummer going into... The camp here, like I mentioned, we are just two uh, two days away from camp kicking off at St. John Fisher College in Rochester. And up to this point, you know, it's been one of those off seasons for the Buffalo Bills that have been, uh, it's been interesting to say the least. In my opinion, and you know this well, I, I, I've not found it to be an awfully negative off season, not nearly to the extent in which people would tell you it has been. Although it has not been as smooth sailing, obviously as it was last year. It's been a bit different. The expectations, of course, last year, uh, the ending to the Chiefs game that was magical despite it resulting in a Bills loss. We've been over it before. It all culminated into a very, I don't know if relaxed is the right word to say. Reassuring might be a good way to put it. You were constantly reassured the Bills were a Super Bowl favorite, how they should be the ones to win it. They're one of the best teams in the league. That reassurance has gone down a bit in this particular point of the offseason compared to last year's uh, last year's time, exact same situation. I think a lot of it has been overblown. I think some of it's justified. But all in all, I don't think it's been an awful offseason by any means for these Buffalo Bills. If we're talking strictly adding personnel, adjusting this roster, and doing the best they can from a management standpoint to not only improve this team, but to re- remain linear and competitive with certain aspects of other teams that are continuously getting better trying to compete with these Buffalo Bills. I thought through the draft and through the uh, free agency signings, restructuring of deals, Brandon Bean had an awesome offseason. I think a lot of the things that were quote-unquote negative were a lot of smoke screens and a lot of social media chatter that really results in a whole lot of nothing. To me, this is probably the most upsetting thing that has happened so far this offseason just because I was looking forward to Naheem Himes getting a bigger role in this offense. If you haven't heard by now, Naheem Himes got injured, uh, is suffering a knee injury in a non-football-related accident. It happened while he was uh, out on a jet ski. He was struck by another rider. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Uh, It seems to me that Naheem Hines was out on the water in his jet ski, and there was just another guy riding another one. Didn't see Naheem Hines, and barrels right into him. Uh, Non-life-threatening injury, of course, but he did suffer a knee injury that was bad enough to sideline him him for the entire upcoming 20 
23 season. Now, for starters, uh, thank God he's, you know, it's non-life-threatening and he's well outside of the knee injury. I mean, that could have, that sound, the way it sounds, I couldn't imagine getting blindsided by a jet ski in the middle of the water. Um, the fact that it's non-life-threatening, that to me is the best part, uh, you know, you take away from this story because you'd only know. You, you, you can only imagine how, how that could have went. Um, and it's terrifying to say the least, just the sound of it. Um, but the unfortunate aspect for Naheem Hines in this particular situation is I think he was coming into this Buffalo Bills team in 2023 off a year where, yes, the role was limited, but it felt like he had become the, the you know, the solidified spot for the Buffalo Bills, uh, or excuse me, the, the solidified player for the Buffalo Bills to be the explosion or the igniter on special teams. I mean, need we not go back and take a look at one of the most iconic plays in the history of this Buffalo Bills franchise? Naheem Hines taking back the kick against the New England Patriots the game after the DeMar Hamlin situation. It'll go down as one of the most memorable, iconic moments in Buffalo Bills history. He was playing phenomenally at the special teams position, and I had been on the record last year saying that I had felt Naheem Hines' role based on them going out and acquiring him midseason. Made, it made no sense the lack, of, the lack of usage that he was getting from Ken Dorsey, this offense as a whole. It seemed as though nothing was drawn up for him on the offensive uh, side of things. Nothing was drawn up with him in mind. And I understand he wasn't going to be the workhorse. He wasn't going to be the every down back. But I had thought when they had signed Naheem Hines, not only do you get the benefit of having him on special teams, but you do get the benefit of a veteran running back who seems to have a lot of tread left on the tires to throw wrinkles into this offense that perhaps weren't there already. The running game had been suffering. It had been suffering for a while, and it had not shown to be any better or worse, really, uh, than it had been throughout the entire season. It just kind of always seemed like it was what it was. And it was, you know, average at best, but the majority of the run game was going to have to come from Josh Allen pulling something out of his ass. I had felt that Naheem Hines brought something to the pass game as well as the running game, and I just thought that Ken Dorsey was going to find a way to incorporate him more. It never really happened. That's what I was looking forward to coming into the 2023 season because obviously Devin Singletary no longer a Buffalo Bill. This is going to be James Cook year to shine, of course. Yeah, you, you add Damian Harris, which I'm looking forward to perhaps more than just about anything else. But I really did think that Naheem Hines was going to be part of a three-man rotation there to some extent. I was looking forward to retaining Naheem Hines on this team and then utilizing him in a way that I felt that they did not last year, but that could be effective. So the unfortunate reality here is that Naheem Hines, that's not going to be the case. Naheem Hines is not going to be out on the field at all for the Buffalo Bills in 2023 due to this jet skiing accident. So now, of course, this breaks middle of the day today, so I have sports radio on, and the first thing everybody throws out is that uh, the Bills should go and sign you fill in the blank. I mean, we, we I'm hearing uh, Latavius, or not, excuse me, we already have Latavius. I keep forgetting that at times that he was added to this team, right? He was one of those, he was one of those signings that felt uh, completely overlooked. I don't know why. That, that Every time I say it out loud, I forget. Wait a minute. 
Now, they actually got him. Uh, no, but I've been hearing ever since, of course, the injury of uh, Naheem Hines broke. I've been hearing Dalvin Cook to the Bills, right? I don't see the injury of Naheem Hines, who was more than likely, I mean, I, I'm, I'm venture to say pretty certain, was going to be the third man in that rotation of running backs, if that. I mean, we saw last year with what I think to be maybe a weaker running back room than they have this year. Naheem Hines never saw the field in the in the backfield. I wouldn't imagine with an improved running back locker room like we have this season that he was going to get that much more time. I was hoping they would find ways to incorporate him. But either way, if they did, you'd have to imagine giving touches to James Cook, giving touches to Damian Harris, uh, and then, of course, everything with Josh Allen that takes up 85 or more percent of the offense. How much was going to be left on the plate for Naheem Hines? Probably not a ton. So with that, you can't look at an injury of a guy who is probably not going to get many snaps to begin with and say, well, that means the Bills need to go hunting for Dalvin Cook. It seems as though any time there's an excuse for a team to be linked to a guy waiting for a new contract or waiting to be signed or whatever, they, 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 every, everybody, you know, talking heads throughout the day, they just immediately link that team with that particular injury to that available free agent. Dalvin Cook, I, there's no way. That would make no, if, that, if this was the, if this was the, the final straw that moved the lever towards the Bills getting a Dalvin Cook, it would shock me. Because it's not like you went into the season with a healthy Naheem Hines looking to replace him with Dalvin Cook. Now that he needs an actual replacement, I don't think that you're looking to fill the third rotation, the third guy in the rotation of this running back locker room. I don't think you're looking to fill that with Dalvin Cook, what he's probably going to want to get paid, and what they're going to be unable to pay him. So there was that was going around throughout the day. I'm sure most of you already are like, Bob, of course, this isn't a thing. But I like putting it out there because it is one of the first things that are is uttered today. The initial, and this is how the NFL works, of course. This is how most sports work. When a player is injured, it's a brief statement on the injury, and then it's an immediate pivot to how are they going to replace the person who was injured. And that's that, of course, is exactly what happened today. Um, I don't necessarily look at this injury as a detriment to the Buffalo Bills offense so much as I look at it to be a detriment to their special teams. They're going to have to figure out now who is going to be fielding the kicks in replace of Naheem Hines. That, to me, is what is the biggest damper of the day by far when hearing this news. They're going to have to find somebody else who is going to be able to replace those shoes in a way that, you know, towards the end of the season last year, I mean, it's going to be a tough act to follow. That would that had been a position that was continuously rotated. We're trying to figure out who the, you know, who was going to emerge as the person that solidified themselves as the best returner for the Buffalo, uh, for the Buffalo Bills. And I think that Naheem Hines, towards the end of the year, it just became obvious that he was on that team for you know the majority of the reason he was picked up and put on that team was for that particular role. So now we look and you know, we looked forward to the 2023 season and that is the area in which I personally believe took the biggest hit today. Now I'm pulling up 
the uh, the depth chart real quick so we can go through exactly who might be able to fill the shoes here. Obviously, uh, Micah Hyde's done it before, and that would be a potential option. And then in replace of um, Isaiah McKenzie this year, you have Deontay Hardy. He's known to be a speedster as well. That was already kind of being thrown out there to begin with. You have to imagine a, a new signee like Deontay Hardy coming into this team this year who's probably going to be looking to get on the field any way he can. I guarantee you we see Deontay Hardy in some capacity more than likely fielding kicks for these Buffalo Bills in 2023. So that's the the one thing you really hone in on when you think about the impact of the team uh, uh, that this injury to Naheem Hines has. So I look at this roster here. I think we all know that Micah Hyde is certainly an option if that's what they want to pursue. I think Deontay Hardy is certainly an option as well. And we'll see what else kind of develops throughout the year if they wind up switching in and out there. But you look at the running back room right now with Naheem Hines not available. And you're going to have James Cook as running back one. There might still be some sort of debate out there as to whether or not Damian Harris ends up being that or not. I don't see it, and I won't look into that or think that until I'm, I'm seeing Damian Harris trot out on the field as a starter. I don't imagine that is the way the Bills are approaching this roster going into the year, going into this camp, um, and nor do I think that should be the way they approach it. I think James Cook is more of your every down back who also is a target and a primary weapon, or should be a primary weapon, in my opinion, in the pass game. Damian Harris is, of course, going to be the newly added additional battering ram to Josh Allen in situations where a yard, you know, a crucial yard or moving the sticks in short in a short way is needed. Then you look to the running back three now, and that is where Latavius Murray will wind up coming into play here with Naheem Hines out. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Latavius Murray, one of those signings earlier in the offseason here that I think kind of went under the radar, used to be a big name, not so much now. But you you do have to wonder, with Naheem Hines no longer available, how much burn is Latavius Murray going to get? How much will he be incorporated into this offense? You'd have to imagine more than perhaps he would have had this not have gone down today. Now, the Bills had also made some signings today following the um, the injury of Naheem Hines. And, and by the way, just once again to reiterate, glad he's all right. Because whenever you hear these fluke accidents, I mean, one, what sucks the most for Naheem Hines is you don't get, not getting injured on the football field is the worst way to get injured, I think. Because, you know, you're not in the facility. I don't know how well that's covered. I know for a fact that when you're injured in the facility, the team takes care of you. I don't know how that works when you're not in the facility. And if I were to guess, it's probably not ideal compared to what it would be like if you got injured in the field house or whatever. Um, so the fact that he you know, got out of that situation without more than a, a knee injury is great, although I do feel for him because – I personally believe getting injured outside of the facility is probably the worst way that you can get banged up and have to miss uh, a season. I mean, because we all know, especially for a guy like Naheem Hines, 
you know, the, the, the days are numbered. And this injury here going into a year, which is later in later on in his career here, um, that's a bummer. You know, you genuinely feel bad for the guy. Pulling up the, uh, <clears throat> let's see, I, I saw earlier today. Go ahead and pull up. Bills actually, after this injury, went out and signed an additional running back. And I think they also signed another player. Not signed. I don't know what the deal is. It's something today. Let me take a look here. Yes. Okay. So, according to the BF uh, Twitter account, which is where I first saw this. And by the way, if you follow Buffalo Fanatics on Twitter, we are not uh, Ripple, the uh, cryptocurrency. What the hell was that? My man Dan Mitchell texted me. He goes, what's up with the BF account? You guys get hacked? I hadn't been on Twitter all day. I was out of town. So I go, I don't know. What do you mean? Let me, uh, let me take a look. So I hop on the Fanatics Twitter account, and it is completely taken over by this cryptocurrency brand called Ripple. And I mean, they, they infiltrated the whole thing. They changed everything, the profile picture, the banner, the description, the links. And then they went through and retweeted like a thousand cryptocurrency related posts. So it looked like they'd been tweeting forever. I don't know. It's back to normal now. Although Twitter necessarily isn't. It's X now. I'm looking right at the logo here. I don't know what's going on anymore. So, the Buffalo Fanatics account, what are we going to call this now? We call them this X'd? We, we, we X'd it out? I like Elon. I'm a fan. This, to me, I don't know what's going on here. This just seems like it was done for the sake of doing something. I'm not going to ever call this X. It's like, like it's, when you change something so prominent, no one's ever going to, I mean, maybe we look back at it however long from now and it catches on. I don't know. But I look at it like I'm never calling the Bills Stadium. I'm never calling it Highmark. It's the route. I was just talking to uh, a good friend of mine's dad the other day who's a Steelers fan. We were talking about that stadium name, too. He said there's not going to be a soul in Pittsburgh or any Pittsburgh Steelers fan that's ever going to refer to Pittsburgh's stadium as anything but Heinz Field. And now it's like some insurance company. Twitter's today is X now, and I'm never not calling it Twitter. Anyhow, I'm on at, oh no, I can't, <laughs> I almost just did it right there. I'm on Twitter, and according to our account here, uh, the Bills plan to sign another tight end, and J.C. Uh, Sternberger is that from Aaron Wilson, who broke that earlier today. Um, but the running back of the Bills wound up picking up today to potentially try and fill the back end of this running back roster um, with the departure, or not the departure, the injury, rather, uh, to Naheem Hines, is running back Darrington Evans. I personally have never heard of my man Darrington, um, but the Bills signed him today, according to Aaron Wilson, who covers the NFL out in Houston. And, uh, hey, I mean, you know, a lot of times these signings after injuries where you're just trying to plug roster spots or trying to at least get a additional body in that situation where one was lost. You know, sometimes you just have no clue who these guys are. I do not personally know 
who Darrington Evans is, but you know my stance on this uh, always. Anytime I don't know who somebody I is or whatever. Personally know. Um, anytime I don't know who somebody is, I'm saying, give me a reason to know who you are, right? I love that. We'll see what happens. Running back room, I think right now, is about as good as it's been in a while. And with that, my confidence in it does not waver today because of the uh, the loss of Naheem Hines. I'm more concerned about the special teams, and I genuinely I'm more of a I'm more in a situation where I just feel bad for him. I think the Bills can live without Naheem Hines. They did last year, even with him on the team. Like I keep mentioning, they they just <laughs> we wouldn't know, I guess. And the one thing I I will admit I was looking forward to this year was potentially getting him involved. I can't remember how many times last year I had said I had said, you know, after that trade or that signing. I remember I just it felt like every week I was saying, why, why, why was this move made? Why was this move made? I mean, I understand the special teams implications, but it seemed like the move at the time was made to stimulate the run game, and that just never happened. So to expect it this year, I don't know. All I do know is that we, have, we, we are seeing changes all over the place in that running back room this year, and – potentially with another year of him being on the roster, another year of Ken Dorsey tweaking up the playbook. Who knows? Um, now we, we do know it's not happening, and that is the unfortunate aspect of this. Um, special teams, though, is where he will be missed uh, the most. So I'm scrolling through the comments here, by the way. Thanks again for joining me tonight here on the Smoke Break. We are taking a look here at... I uh, saw somebody here mention that the tight end the Bills picked up, which I did not know this. Uh, which I thought was a cool tidbit. Where am I? Where was this? Right here. So my man Mike Harrell comes in. He says Sternberger played in the USFL, and I think I just saw who is it? Right, uh, my man Roy here. So he was on the team. Is the Birmingham Stallions the one that are they the one that's won two in a row, or is that another team? I know whoever won the championship. Right? They, they didn't they win it back to back years. Hey, good for that kid. I love hearing that stuff. I love hearing about guys who, you know, get an opportunity like this. That is awesome. I absolutely love it. Although, my man, uh, what was his name again? Sturberger. Uh, he unfortunately for him, he's got some he's got some big he's got some big dogs ahead of him that he's gonna be competing with if he's gonna try and uh have a Kurt Warner type arc here into NFL success because uh you already got Dawson Knox, and then, of course, you got the young prodigy in Dalton Kincaid. But you love the ability to give a guy like that a chance uh, nonetheless. One thing you might notice in the background tonight, we got a new guy. We got a new addition to the Josh Allen uh, memorabilia collection. And as you know, if it drops, it's at the doorstep. Even things I never in my life thought I would buy. I never in my life thought I would buy a Christmas ornament. What about a Christmas ornament is appealing to me? They seem like they just come from somewhere. Remember the last time you bought a Christmas ornament? Doesn't it just seem like they're, they're there? Honey, where's the Christmas ornaments? Oh, they're in that weird green box in that weird portion of the garage that nobody goes to until Christmas. Did anybody ever buy... The ornaments, or did they just, like, appear out of nowhere? It always felt like in my household growing up, the ornaments just kind of appeared. 
And we would always seem to have more of them, but it was never like my mom came home and was like, oh, look, we got the new ornament today. Like, they just kind of, I don't know. But this one I bought with my own hard-earned money. And why? Because it's Josh Allen. There's a new Christmas ornament out in July. Because as you know, in America, consumerism never ends, especially when it comes to the holiday season. And as you know, I'm the one who keeps the wheel turning. I'm the one who keeps these wheels greased, this this consumerism nonstop over and over cycle. You throw the Bills logo or Josh Allen on it, give me a taste. Here he is. We got the, the Hallmark Josh Allen 2023 Football Legends. That's what they're calling it. Football Legends ornament line. And I think this is sweet, man. For like a Christmas ornament, which I feel like you're not necessarily getting like the most amazing thing in the world. I thought this turned out freaking awesome. Thing is sweet. And me and my girlfriend have a new place this year. We don't have any of those magical Christmas ornaments laying around. So this is going to be what I'm thinking is we're going to put the tree up six months from now. And the fact this is even a thing is insane to me. Uh, But six months from now, we'll put the tree up. And I'm thinking this guy goes right where he belongs at the top of it, leaping over the damn thing. He's already kind of got that stance going. And we don't put another single Christmas ornament up there. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, here's the box, by the way, which I want to confirm to you all that I was not messing around when I said that this series is, a, is called the Football Legends Series. So no matter what your stance is on Josh Allen to those non-Bills fans, you can't argue with the fact that Hallmark has solidified Josh Allen, at least in tw- uh, at this point in 2023, as a legend, a legend of football. Anyhow, if you want to look into getting one of these ornaments for yourself, which I'm sure you probably do, and I have no affiliation to this whatsoever, just know that you guys love that stuff just probably as much as I do because every time I tweet this stuff out, you people go nuts and buy it all, and I love it because it makes me feel better about the fact that I bought it. Anyhow, links on my Twitter if you're uh, looking to put J.A. on your Christmas tree. Um, So... Naheem's, uh, Naheem Hines, that's that. Unfortunate. Wish him all the best in recovery this offseason. True bummer, uh, you know, going into the camp here because it's two days away and that's what you're focused on. And then you get this news and it's off the field and just a bummer and wishing nothing but the best for, uh, for Naheem Hines. With that said, camp, it is indeed two days away. Some other teams have started camp if you haven't seen. I'm sure you've seen uh, the talk of the town this past week, and that's that Josh Allen, or excuse me, not Josh Allen. I have that on my brain just because this is what I would typically fill in the blank of what I would imagine to be the best combo or the best uh, whatever, best quarterback to watch. Not this past week, though. However, that was stolen by Aaron Rodgers hooking up with uh, Garrett Wilson in the back of the end zone at New York Jets camp. And it's one of those things where this is continuously, and I tweeted this out the other day, and I want to go back and find the the, the moment I, I said this because this is exactly what I told you would happen, and, and I think you probably all knew it before I even said anything because, I mean, if you're into football, you know exactly what's going on in the world of the NFL right now. It is the Jets being crammed down your throat. The New York Jets are being absolutely shoved in your face, crammed down your throat. You are being told that the Jets are the second coming and that the New York Jets this season have every right to be considered a top Super Bowl contender and 
this and that. I'm not here to tell you what you should think about them one way or the other. Are they a closer? Are they closer to a Super Bowl contender this year than they were last year? Absolutely. Does that still make them uh, deserve to be in the realm of conversation that other teams are typically involved in just because of the addition of Aaron Rodgers? I don't know. We will find out very soon. That is one of the elements of this 2023 season that has me by far the most excited. And we will get into the exciting and fearful aspects of the Buffalo Bills season coming up shortly here. I just wanted to uh, touch quick on this overall arcing situation that's going to continue to develop. And we kind of touch base on it every week or so because it seems as though something happens every single week that just further develops and further uh, emphasizes my point here that the New York Jets are going to be the team this year. And the Dolphins have kind of been like this to some extent, not nearly as much as now. not nearly as much as the Jets are now because of Aaron Rodgers and what he already brings to the table as far as star stardom is concerned. But Aaron Rodgers has brought this element to the Jets where it, it, they have been thrusted to the front of the line in every topic of conversation. They are being considered X, Y, and Z, you name it. And it's one of those teams that, you know, they're the hot button win it all team to the talking heads because if they're right, they look like geniuses and it looks good talking about it now because you're early on. And if they're wrong, who cares? No one's going to go back and remember it anyways. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to remember it. Because I'm keeping note here. There's a million different things that just continuously seem to come out nonstop. The one that kind of reminded me of it was this throw, you know, Aaron Rodgers hits Garrett Wilson back of the end zone. It's a great throw and catch phenomenal i mean i'm not an idiot i love good football when the bills aren't on i like good football right if the bills are playing on thursday night i don't want the sunday night game to be houston versus arizona i want good football aaron Rodgers has given me good football my entire life for the most part this is good ball it's just one more element where aaron Rodgers makes a good throw in practice and by the way i don't know if you've seen him in the uh in the helmet I don't know what they're doing with Aaron Rodgers and his helmet. It looks like it's nine times the size of what it should be. It, it doesn't look it doesn't look human. I don't know what it is. Because Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he's aging like fine wine, right? He, he's in great shape. And uh, the way that this, this helmet makes it... I just... I'll let you judge for yourself. Because... It looks like the thing could fit on top of, like, you know those gigantic balls outside of Target, the gigantic red balls? It looks like you could put one of these helmets that Aaron Rodgers is wearing over it. And it's not like he looks like he has that big of a dome. I mean, it just it just seems like it's a joke. You see this? I don't know if this is doing it justice or not, but the thing is like is like a foot taller than the edge of his head. Like if your head ends here, like imagine my head ends here, but my hat went up to like up here. That's what's going on. Um, but no, anyway, it was a great throw, great catch. It's just all you saw, right? It's just all you saw, and this has become the. Uh, you know, throws like that, footage like that, it's become the ammunition 
for takes like these that I tweeted out uh, about the other day where I just have convinced myself that I'm rooting I'm putting it I'm putting it in I guess I'm cementing my stance on this both online written uh, written out and then verbally here I'm rooting for the Patriots in every single one of their non-Bills AFC East games. All over them. Massively. Do I think they're going to be awfully competitive? No. I think the Patriots are quite clearly the fourth worst team of the four in the AFC East. And I personally think, talent-wise, they are towards the bottom barrel, frankly, of the AFC. Don't care. They got my. They have got my support in all four games against the Dolphins and the Jets. In particular, the New York Jets. Because this is what you're getting now, where this is like the – I don't even know if you can see it because it's all like blurry or whatever. It's all, or it's all lit up. Let me see if I can – there you go. That's a little better. Well, I mean, what, what you're getting here, at least – I know I'm kind of like moving this around like, a, like it's, like it's a, a ballerina here. But as you can see here, this was uh, on GetUp, which, I mean, if you're watching that, anyway, I don't know what – I don't know. Not, not my not my thing, but it's not it's no diss to anybody on that show or any show in particular because this is uh, this is every show on the planet now. Uh, if you couldn't see the picture there, there was four panelists who were asked who's going to win the AFC East. Two of them chose the Miami Dolphins. Two of them chose the New York Jets. So you're telling me – and, I mean, let's just be honest here. And, I, and this is something that I, I, I ask all fan bases to do. I ask all fan bases to do this. Be real. I, I try my best to be as real as I can while also being an absolute lunatic when it comes to the Buffalo Bills. I also try to put reality in there to some certain extent because, one, it makes the viewing experience much more sensible, and two, you really are able to taper the overall weight of everything going around in a particular season. If you're if you're to the point of absolute lunacy where you think the Bills are going to win every single game, I mean, walk to the play, uh, walk to the Super Bowl, yada yada. Which th- there's plenty of that. There's plenty of that in every fan base. You know, if you're like that, then you have no ability to see the context of any other obstacle in the way of the Buffalo Bills. Right? You have to be able to take a look at what the NFL is and be able to dissect from there, which we're going to do in a bit here. What could be an obstacle for the Buffalo Bills? What is a legitimate thing that could be in their way? Something that causes concern towards the path of getting to the Super Bowl or whatever else. So, on the other, like, I'm trying to, with that, I guess the overall, the overall arching point here is that if there's four panelists on a show, and they're asked, who's going to win the AFC East, right? I don't want all four of them saying the Bills. I genuinely don't because I think that's a crock of shit. I don't think all four of them think in this competitive of a division that the Bills should deserve to be indisputable all four across the board favorites or uh, you know locked in to win this. There should be some discretion. There should be some argument towards the Dolphins' ability to win it, towards the Jets' ability to win it. I understand that. And this is what I was kind of getting at just a second ago. 
you have to have some discretion here. You have to understand the Dolphins do not. I mean, the Dolphins are, they beat us last year, right? And should have beat us. Let's face it. I mean, you know it as well as I with a backup quarterback at home in the playoffs. To think that team is a pushover at this point, you're wrong. And they're only going to be better. We know they're a threat. Do I think the Bills are better? I absolutely do. But they are a absolute competitor in this division. Absolutely. And then the New York Jets, a team that beat us last year with Zach Wilson, a team that has one of the best young defenses in the entire league, a team that has really one of the best young rosters in the entire league, and felt as though they were a quarterback away last year from being a playoff team. They now have a first ballot Hall of Famer. There are arguments completely legitimate to have these guys be a choice on these shows, right? I totally get it. To have four panelists, not a single one of them choose the Buffalo Bills is absurd to me. And that is where you're able to to separate the ability to understand that all of this stuff is not being it's not being predicted based on these people's genuine thoughts at least this is how it's perceived i perceive it these opinions aren't necessarily based on these people's actual genuine thoughts they're based on the shock value of it because you cannot tell me in a level-headed room of four guys who supposedly know the sport and the league you cannot tell me that if out of all four of these guys, not a single one takes the Buffalo Bills. And you hear and you hear this all over the place now. You're hearing this everywhere. The Bills are like, you got to kind of like give yourself. It's, it's almost like taboo, it seemed, to not pick somebody other than the Bills this year. Does it not seem like that's what it's become? And look, I understand, like I just said. Plenty of arguments. If you wanted to give me a, hey, listen, I really do think, man, it's the Dolphins' year. They've been getting better and better. They had the Bills on the ropes last year. Two is healthy. I totally understand. The Jets, all the the reasons I just gave you, totally understand. But to not have the Bills in there at all, I mean, this is what I'm talking about. And this is what I can't stand. I'm fine with the excitement level and the competitiveness of of the entire situation. I'm actually looking forward to all of that. This is the most competitive the AFC East has been in my lifetime. Don't know how particularly close it is either. I mean, we all know it was the Patriots, and that was it. And the only team who ever, you know, really gave them any consistent trouble, and it wasn't that much, was Miami. And outside of the two AFC championship runs for the New York Jets, we had over two decades straight of the New England Patriots single-handedly dominating that division, and that is why they were so unbelievably successful in the postseason. They won the division so many times, the one or two seed was essentially a guarantee for the New New England Patriots. They had the easiest path to the one or two seed in the AFC for some time. Right? So, this ain't that. The Bills aren't the New England Patriots now where the Dolphins are the Dolphins. The Jets are the Bills, right? And the Patriots are whoever else. It's a completely different ballgame now. This would be the equivalent of the Patriots having two other 
I guess you could be. I guess you could say to some extent. I don't know how you could you go you could go nuts with this if you want, but this would be the essential equivalent. Essentially, would be the equivalent of at that time throwing in if you wanted to the Baltimore Ravens, who are one of the biggest competitors for the New England Patriots during the time, and the Pittsburgh Steelers, or fill in the blank, the Indianapolis Colts. You fill in the blank. Throw in two other top AFC competitors. At that time, into the conference or into the division, that's what you got now. Not to mention all the other teams outside of the AFCs. So the competitiveness is an exciting aspect of this season, right? And the ability to argue a team not the Buffalo Bills winning the AFC East this year is 100% legitimate. But my point is to have nobody pick them at all on, uh, in that one particular uh, situation, and, and really the, the grand scope of it, right? Does it not seem like that? It, it, it seems as though the grand scope of things has become a highly, a highly increased number of people picking either the Jets or Bills. It seems as though if you were to line up a group of people and then have, or, or whatever, you line up the media uh, consensus of who's winning the AFC East across all these shows or whatever, and you compiled the data, it, I, 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 based on my personal listening and viewing experience over the last few months during this offseason, I think the number heavily skews towards the, the, the Jets and the Dolphins. And I just don't think that that has been justified. It's been propelled forward because, one, I think there might be a little bit of Bill's fatigue setting in where the Bills had these expectations, they didn't live up to them, and they were absurd to begin with, but they didn't live up to them, so therefore you kick them to the curb in your mind for the next shiny new toy, and the shiniest new toy in the AFC this year is Aaron Rodgers. So the Bills have kind of been thrown into the old toy box, and you open up the new toy, even though that toy is insanely old, in Aaron Rodgers, and you start to put him on your main display. I think that's part of it. The exit to Cincinnati is 100% a part of it. And you know this to be true because the last time we saw the Buffalo Bills going into last offseason was the best, one of the best football games we'd ever seen. It was, you know, the 13 seconds away from getting out of there. But even with that loss, we all know that leaving that game, everybody felt incredibly confident about the future of the Buffalo Bills. And that is why, out of almost thin air, they had immediately become the favorite to win the Super Bowl. You paired that with the addition of Von Miller, and it immediately propelled the Bills to being the Super Bowl favorite going into the year. Right? So, you take a look at this particular situation this season, and... It's not nearly as much of the case. And I think that that, I think that that in itself is good. I do enjoy that. I, I personally do, uh, I do favor being in this particular situation than I am the one that we were in last year. But it seems as though the loss to Cincy being the last thing that anybody saw from these Buffalo Bills has really lingered. I think the same could be said about the Chiefs game where I was just discussing how that one ended. I think that lingered into the following season. Despite that being a loss, it lingered 
in your mind that Josh Allen just played one of the best games anyone's ever played at the quarterback position in a playoff game. Gabe Davis quite literally had the greatest day ever as a receiver in a playoff game. The Bills offense looked absolutely unstoppable. Josh Allen looked like he belonged on the main stage more so than anybody else. He was toe-to-toe with Patrick Mahomes, arguably outplayed him at certain aspects of things. I mean, it, it was the he- it was it was the heavyweight fight of the of the the decade. So you kind of forgot about the fact that they lost it because I think most people realize that game came down to a coin toss. If you would have let those two go all night, we'd still be playing that one. That's just the way it was going. Last year, that game was over before the ball even got kicked off, and that is also lingering just as much as the former as the as the prior year. Just in two different ways. So I think you mix all this together. You mix the fatigue on the Bills a bit, not living up to expectation. You mix, you mix in the fact that the last time you saw him was one of the worst performances they've really ever had with Josh Allen at the competitive standpoint that they are at now. And I think that that is what's culminated into having the Jets and the Dolphins be the new easy pick for the AFC East uh, title because you can easily denounce the Bills this year. All you have to do is bring up the Cincy game and then fabricated bullshit about Stephon Diggs and you have an argument for talking uh, talk radio, sports television. That's what it really has been. If you've noticed, anytime anybody has a reason to demote the Bills on their hierarchy or their AFC East prediction like we're talking about here. If you notice, the only two arguments that are typically brought up are a game that happened six months ago and a feud that I don't really think is a feud that has been nothing other than a bunch of fabricated BS. So when you kind of break it down, They're just kind of looking for ways to move on to the next thing, and they've done a great job. But the Bills are still here. The Bills are still here. So with that, and this is kind of segueing from what we were just talking about. We were talking about being rational, looking at the things that, as we go into this season, are clear objectives, are clear roadblocks for these Buffalo Bills, both internally, externally, We're going to look at that, and those are going to be the fears. What I fear most about the 2023 season. And when I say fear, that could be a bit exaggerated. I guess the better word might be, by the way, my nose is just good God. Looks like someone shoved a bag of feathers up there. Jesus. We're going to talk about, I'm trying to think of the best word. I don't know if concern's the right word. I I think fear might be the better, the best word. I think every time you go into a season, there's a little bit of fear in you. Especially for a team like the Bills with expectations being what they are. I think the biggest fear is, of course, not living up to them. And that's what last year was. I think that's why last year was so tough to swallow. Because even though the optimism was as high as it had ever been, and the expectations were too, the fear of not living up to them, it loomed loomed for me. I'll say that going into the year. I don't think you realize how much it did loom inside of you though until it kind of came to fruition and that's when you really step back and realize you know just you know how devastating of a blow that was to kind of end the year like that 
I, I've said this a thousand times. I've never been that low before as a Bills fan. Just, just never been more down on myself as far as, like, man, the commitment level or whatever the hell else, you name it. I mean, I, you know how it is. I just remember sitting there being like, damn. This is, uh, it doesn't get worse. It just doesn't get worse than this. You're just left with nothing to say. So we're going to talk about the fears about this coming 2023 season. What do I personally think? And I want you guys to let me know in the comments as well. What you think going into 2023 is going to be the biggest obstacle for the Bills, scattered around the biggest obstacles for the Bills, and things that you genuinely kind of step back and think twice about when you think about the Bills getting through the 2023 season the best way they can. I'm also going to talk about the things that I think I'm most excited about, and there's plenty of that, too. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things about this Buffalo Bills team that I am excited about going into 2023 that I don't think I've ever really been excited about before to this capacity for these Buffalo Bills, which is saying something because, you know, it's been a while now since this whole new type of team has emerged. And I think ever since that has happened, the complacency, I think, of us as fans, I think that's kind of, it, it, it is a bit, at least for me, it's a bit noticeable where you kind of immediately get settled into this new level of fandom that you'd never really had been at before. And by that, I mean this new level of success the team is having. So therefore, you you as a fan are dealing with the success that you know you're experiencing as the fan itself, itself, right? I personally think that um, there's aspects going into this season that I've never, I don't know, that I haven't experienced before that had me super, super jazzed up. There's also other elements to the year that I think are under the radar a bit that could be perceived as the things that you might be fearful about, but that have that have me even more excited, right? We're going to talk about what's got me absolutely fired up for the year, what's got me fearful, and ultimately a little bit of reasoning for both sides. And like I said earlier, let me know in the comments your personal fears and your personal excitement uh, going into the year this year. I think there's plenty of, there's plenty of both. And I think this is the way every year, at least for me, is I, that's how I approach every year. Last year, I think the fear was being masked up a lot, just because you kept being told there really wasn't a, there wasn't any reason to be fearful. This year, however, that meter has definitely increased. The fear meter has definitely increased. Although I will not crank it up to what I'm being told to. You know, everybody talking about the decline of Josh Allen mixed in with the stuff we were just talking about. I'm not going to that level. I'm more concerned about the surrounding elements the Buffalo Bills are going to be facing and then how they're going to be able to live up to that. That's the whole t- That's the whole key for me. Um, we'll start with what I'm most excited about overall going into camp and then overall going into the before we do that, though, I know I missed one up here that I got to get to, and I know it was my man Silas. Sorry, Silas. Left you out on that for like 20 minutes, but this big-ass head kept it in the back here to go back to. Uh, Silas Whittle coming in saying, does Spencer Brown fall under excitement or fear? Well, how about that? I waited uh, the perfect amount of time, Silas, because right as I get into the topic, you were already you were, you beat me to it. Jason Miller coming in as well. He's saying, number one fear, will Dorsey evolve as a OC? 
not leave it to the wide receivers to win 1v1s, but route designs that open their routes up, something I felt Dable did well. So I guess we'll start there because that, of course, was towards the top of my fear list. So we'll go back and forth. There's no real rhyme or reason to this. I'm just going to go off the top of my head and list off the things that I personally find strike a little bit of fear in me going into this season, and that excite me. One that 100% strikes fear into me is what Jason just mentioned. I think when it comes to the internal aspect of the Buffalo Bills, the thing that might fear me, that, that might strike fear into me the most is Ken Dorsey's situation. I think about this particular aspect of the Bills. I'm mostly I'm trying to think of the way to express this. The, my thoughts on Dorsey and what I think about his role being on the Bills are are triggered when I hear about Brian Dable, if that makes sense. Every time I hear about Brian Dable, whether I'm listening to the radio, watching TV, sports TV, whatever, every time I hear Brian Dable, I can't help but immediately think of Ken Dorsey. It's almost like if you say Brian Dable's name, it can't be uttered into my ears without Ken Dorsey being joined at the hip with him. And I'll give you an example. It just happened today. I'm listening to, uh, so as I'm working during the day, I work from home right where I'm sitting here is where I work. I got my, I got my, I call it uh, mission control. Got mission control here. I got the monitors, everything, everything, you name it. It's, I got everything in here. I got everything. So with that, I don't, <laughs> I'm, barri- I'm barricaded in here, man. Like this is the office. So I'm in here a ton. So to keep the sanity when no one else is home, I got the sports radio going all day long, like nine hours of it, nonstop. Today on Coward, he was out, McIntyre filled in. I'm not a McIntyre guy at all. But like I said, the radio's on. I'm rolling with it. And one thing I was kind of half listening because I was working on my, I was working on my videos for work and I had the volume going, whatever I was half listening. But what, what I, what pierced my ear is they were talking about Saquon and his situation with the giants, the contract situation. And what hit my ears, like an alarm was when he said, Brian Dable is an offensive genius. That's what Jason McIntyre said today while he was hosting the radio show. They were talking back and forth about the Giants and how they're going to be able to overcome the current situation with Saquon Barkley's contract, the limitations of Daniel Jones. And Jason McIntyre referred to Brian Dable as an offensive genius. And the first thing that strikes my mind is that was what we are now, and I I think we're using that term awfully loosely, by the way. I think we're using that awfully loosely. Andy Reid's an offensive genius. Sean Payton was an offensive genius. I think Dable's got, you know, you got more to, you got, you got a lot, and I think he'd probably be the first one to tell you this as well. You have a lot more pieces of the puzzle to fill in, I think, before we get to the level of, of referring to uh, him as a genius. But an absolute phenomenal offensive coach. And that needs no explanation. We all know that to be true. But my initial thought as I hear that is, 
that used a guy they are now referring to as an offensive genius was running the offense led by Josh Allen was running the offense that had propelled these Buffalo Bills to being one of the best teams in the NFL, one of the most prolific offenses in the entire league, one of the best watches, really, in all of entertainment. That is what the offense of the Buffalo Bills had become. And that is why, of course, Brian Dable gets the head coaching job, much, much deserved, in New York. And that's why... When they go to the playoffs for the first time in a decade or so with Daniel Jones win a playoff game, yeah, you watch the wheels turn real quick from Brian Dable being a guy not everybody knew to being a good OC to being a great OC to now getting the head coach job. And now we all know there's nowhere, there's nowhere else to go really but two ways when you're a head coach. Terribly and out or you start getting into this realm of being considered well, I guess there's three. There's a there's a middle ground where you're just stuck in mediocrity forever, and that seems to happen a lot. Coaches get ample opportunity, it feels like, in this league, ping-ponged back and forth from team to team. There's that. There's get the hell out of the league, guys. And then there's guys that when they have success and continue to do it in different ways with different teams, different players, different success levels based on what talent they have. I mean, we start to get to the point here where we – go from great OC, good coach, great coach, genius. We're already approaching that level. Caroline just walked in with chicken wings, by the way. Did you? All right, hold on. I, I said she went to the she went to go get food. And I said, uh, I said, I'm gonna leave it up to her. I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the judgment in your hands on what to get me. What'd you get me? I got you the twelve pack of the NAE chicken wings. You got me you got me the twelve pack. Yep. Wow. Whoa, folks, I don't get wings down in Connecticut often because I'm kind of scared they're going to suck. These look pretty freaking good. These look good. And I got to tell you, I, I, there's nothing I miss more than chicken wings from home when, when I'm down here. The food here, I can't complain. The food here, Kevin, right? You'd agree. It's good here. Food in Stanford, Connecticut is great. We got French fries. I'll get my, Jesus. Jenna said I always got the food plug. And by the food plug, I mean, I mean my girl Caroline right here. She is the food plug. You brought you got the ice cream. We got this. Although, don't get it twisted. She's doing she's doing this because she's like, all right, I got to get him something. If I'm going to get myself something. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, okay, goodbye. See you later. No, as I was saying, I, I the food down here is phenomenal. It's just that the wings, man. I don't trust wings anywhere else. When you grow up where we grew up, why would you? You're just trained, and you like you'll, you'll make the mistake of going somewhere else in the other part of the country or the world or whatever, and you'll be like, "Oh my god, I knew this wasn't going to be good. I I knew this wasn't going to be good," but you do it anyways. Roy coming in, he's saying, "I was a Hartford native for almost 25 years. No kidding, Roy. So Hartford, I'm about two and a half from. I went and saw Dave Matthews." Uh, in Hartford, what last month? So that was the first time I had driven there from here. Yeah, it was about two and a half hours. But uh, Stanford area, we love it here. We love it. If only they would open a bar bill out here. Of course, they waited uh, until I moved out. Literally two months after I moved out, they opened a bar bill up in Rochester. Incredible. Um, all right, as I was interrupted with the uh, the chicken wing order there, we were talking about the fear of potentially, you know, not potentially. We were, we were talking about the fear of, uh, you know, the 
unknown, I guess is the best way to put it, of, of Ken Dorsey. Where is this going to go, right? And I was talking about Brian Dable because you're, you're now here. And this is the first time I've heard this. I don't know if anybody else refers to Brian Dable as this. I don't know if anybody else believes this. And frankly, it doesn't matter because it was said, right? It was said by a prominent talk sports talk radio show. So the fact that one person said it just means it's out in the ether to some capacity. Whether you believe it or not, it's one of those things that is being said and without a whole ton of scrutiny. Right? Brian Dable, offensive genius. The first thing I thought of when I heard that is like, it's just, it's just damn. It's damn. Because we're sitting here going into the 2023 uh, season that is in the midst of a Super Bowl window that is forever closing. And you hear your old OC that was, you know, around probably during the best run that this team had towards getting to the ultimate prize, right? You, you hear him being referred to as a genius, and then you think back to not only was he on the team, of course, but you think about the fact that his replacement is probably one of the biggest question marks surrounding this team going into this year. That's a tough pill to swallow at times. Because it was never a concern under him. Why would it be? I think if you lined up, you took a small portion of Bills fans to be the sample. Line up 100 Bills fans. And I'm talking Bills fans who are in the know, right? They know all the, co- you know, they, they know the personnel, the coaches, whatever the situations, you know, they're aware, okay? You line up 100 of them and you ask them, what is something about this Buffalo Bills team that has you, you know, showing a sign of caution to some degree? What percentage of that do you think would say Ken Dorsey? I would say a high percentage. Because when I brought up talking about our fears on here, not only not even 10 minutes ago, I looked down at the comment section, including Jason's super chat here, and the first thing I saw was multiple people referring to Ken Dorsey. I'm positive. That out of that hundred group, hundred person sample size, at least what forty percent minimum that that would be on the list. Why is he on the list? How does he get off off the list? Because really, that's all that matters. All that matters, and he he could do it this year. It, it doesn't take a lot, I think to get on the good graces. I just think it takes a better visual performance, at least this year, from Dorsey. Something about this offense last year, and I I swear I can never put my finger on it when I talk about it. And I feel like I talk about it often. Because I look at the statistics, including the rushing statistics. If you looked at the Buffalo Bills rushing statistics last year, you would think they were one of the one of the best running teams in the league. They were seventh overall, and I think I think they were seventh overall in total offensive yard uh, total offensive rush yards. They were seventh overall in another rushing category as well that I saw one of the more prominent ones. If you were to look straight at the numbers, this Buffalo Bills team would come across as a highly efficient running team. And they would also come across as one of the most dominant offenses in the NFL. Now, we have seen the Bills time and time again prove that that is true. 
the domination on offense, at least, not the running game. Right? That, I don't, I, I those numbers always blow my mind. Because you watch the Bills, you know they're not a good run team. Josh Allen's good at making a great run here and there out of nothing. That pats the stats. He's great at running design runs that were f- far too frequently called. But if you were to boil the Bills down to being a good run team or not, the answer is no. Yet the numbers would say differently. They would say they're a top 10 running team in the NFL. He would also say the Bills have one of the most dominant offenses in the NFL. True. We've seen that countless times. But you'd be lying to yourself if you said towards the end of the year, the Bills offense visually did not look nearly as intimidating to the uh, to the opponent, nearly as efficient, nearly as effective, and overall nearly as dominant as it was to end the year the year prior and to begin the year last season. The odd part about it, and we had conversations about this in the middle of the year last year, and they were tough conversations to have because you didn't have a whole hell of a lot, as I still don't, to kind of rest your hat on other than just something not feeling right. Last year, they won every single one of these games. I remember at one point, the Bills were 8-3 and three and the Miami Dolphins were 8-3. and three. And as the year trekked on, the Bills got to 12-3, and three, and the Miami Dolphins were 8-7. and seven. And I remember during that point in time, the Bills were racking up wins, and it felt like the wins, I don't know how they were getting them. You were, you, were never, you were never quite comfortable about anything that was happening. But the problem was you never really had a reason to bitch. They'd find a way to win. But then we got into the playoffs, and it seemed like the chickens kind of came home to roost a bit because they played like crap against Miami and got out by the skin of their teeth, and then they just absolutely laid an egg against the Cincinnati Bengals and didn't show up. And that was the culmination of what I had thought I had seen signs of throughout the second half of the year that had just never solidified themselves because it never really bit them in the ass. And it seemed to have bit them in the ass at the worst possible time. Could it get worse than a home divisional playoff game against what is now one of your biggest rivals in the Cincinnati Bengals. I think with Ken Dorsey, the potential is there. I don't know how it couldn't be with a guy like Josh Allen. The ability to open the playbook as wide as you want is there. You got a guy that can do quite literally everything. And I think going into this season, you have a dynamic running back in James Cook that can be much more of an asset to your offense than he was given a chance to be last year, right? You got Damian Harris now, power back, that the Bills have not had anything quite like in a long time. You have Dalton Kincaid bringing now to the forefront a two-tight end set that the Bills have not run, that teams in the NFL who have run have had wild success with when they have the right guys. And if they do, in fact, have the right guys, which we all think they do, 
That could be one hell of a duo there. You got Stephon Diggs, who, no, does not want to be traded. The assets are there. And the guy was given a job for the, for a reason. I understand it was the easier move. He's in-house, and that's why they hired Ken Dorsey. He was already in-house. The relationships are there. These guys like Ken Dorsey. I've talked to a few of the offensive players firsthand about Ken Dorsey. They all love him. And I think they all genuinely believe in him. Last year was a tough spot. And I look at both angles here. I look at both sides. For Ken Dorsey, last year, let's look at the let's look at the the reason I defend him. Rookie year. Rookie year as a full-time OC. And you're thrusted into the biggest or the most pressurized situation the franchise in which you are now the OC of has been in in over two decades. You are now replacing a guy who I just said is being referred to as an offensive genius now. You're replacing a guy that has been given credit for all of Josh Allen's success. He has been termed as the guy who, quote, made Josh Allen. You're replacing that guy. You are the face of the offense now, which is being led by one of the faces of the entire NFL in Josh Allen. All the while, as this is happening, you're expected to go out and have an offense that is going to win the Super Bowl. An incredibly tough position to be in when it is your first year on the job. I also look at the numbers, and as I said, visually, I, I just don't think they were they were they're linear to what the numbers portray. But at the end of the day, this is a game that can't be refuted by the statistics. The stats were there. This offense was right there, right there. There was just something off, something off. And last year, let's face it, this entire year, the entire year. There was something off. Everything had something off. It just felt like nothing was really going to, nothing wanted to go right. And if something could could do a harsh turn somewhere else, it seemed like it would happen. I think given the circumstances, criticism 100% was deserved throughout the season at different points towards Ken Dorsey. Overall, I don't think in hindsight, in totality, looking back on it, it's not nearly as bad as some people would make you think. And it's also an incredibly small sample size in a, in a situation that was amplified to a degree you couldn't even imagine. It was almost as though Ken Dorsey last season was set up to fail by everybody. Ken Dorsey, the only way he could have succeeded last year Unanimous, unanimously among the fan base and the public eye, the only way that could have happened is if Josh Allen won the MVP, if the Bills made it to or won the, at the very minimum, AFC Championship and or, of course, Super Bowl. I mean, think about it. What would Ken Dorsey have had to have done last year to be considered a success? Because if things stayed the exact same, you would have considered it a, a decline. Let's face it. You would have. If they were the exact same, which on paper they pretty much were. Like you look at Josh Allen's numbers and this big regression everybody talks about, well, uh, it, it really didn't happen. 
But the reason, and I think this is back to my own personal reason, I think the reason why people think that there is a regression happening with Josh Allen is because visually last year, it wasn't as sexy and dominant and eccentric as it seemed to be in the first two games of the year and towards the back end of last year, right? So because of that, and because it wasn't Dable, I don't know. There's part of me last year that just feels as though Dorsey was never given. He was he was set up to fail. There's part of me that also thinks he still is he still is set up to fail. There are so many people in this fan base currently that are in this exact they are in this exact same mindset right now that I was just referring to, where Dorsey is going to have to pull off. What this franchise has never done, essentially, in order to be given props or in order to be considered the right choice at OC here. I'm not I'm not in a position currently to look at Ken Dorsey and think to think overly on one side or the other. I'm pretty damn neutral on this right now. And I think you could throw Ken Dorsey into both sides of this grouping here. The excitement and the fear. I'm excited to see how Ken Dorsey bounces back into this season. I am. I think that's a guy who genuinely wants it. I don't think you explode the way you do up in the booth there if you don't just vehemently, vehemently, you do not go off the way, you do not go off the way Ken Dorsey did up in that booth if you do not 100% bleed the job you're currently working. If you do not 100% believe and are dialed into this job. That guy wants to succeed. He's nuts. And I think that has the potential to make him great. I do. I think that there is a work ethic and a desire to succeed inside of Ken Dorsey that truly does have the potential to make him great. I'm excited to see what he does. I'm excited to see what he does because he's got an opportunity this year to do some, some things the bills have not done, including this, the, the addition of Dalton Kincaid here, I think is going to be a jet pack. You know, how when you used to play those games on the app store, you'd get, you go around, I guess the better way to put it would be like Mario Kart. You know how you're driving around on Mario Kart and you drive through the, the, the question mark boxes and you get a power up. I think, Dalton Kincaid was a much-needed power-up in Ken Dorsey's current lap on Rainbow Road. And I think he's got a couple of these at his disposal. How is he going to utilize them to get towards the front of the line? Dalton Kincaid, if he winds up being the asset that we think he can be, that's going to be one hell of a mystery box unlocked for Ken Dorsey. And I think it's hard for us to fathom that that was only one year of the Ken Dorsey experience. It was only one year. It, it feels as though it's been longer. 
Why? I don't know. It just kind of feels like that. There's an element of fear that I I have in Ken Dorsey's ability to live up to the expectation that's been set for him. I, I, I I am genuinely fearful of that. I think the bar set for Ken Dorsey is astronomically high. I think it's somewhat unfair, to be honest. I don't know if Ken Dorsey has, has been given a fair opportunity to, to succeed here. I will say, however, if he wants to silence everybody and give nobody even a ounce of, of ability to refute his success, uh, his success, go out and do what everybody's waiting for. <laughs> doesn't It doesn't get easier. I mean, not easy, but it doesn't get more simpler than that. I uh, I look at I look at Ken Dorsey the way I look at both sides of the spectrum here on the fear and excitement chart. He's right down the middle. I am neutral on Ken Dorsey. I will remain neutral on Ken Dorsey until I am given a reason to staunchly think one side or the other. Right now, I don't. Right now, I don't find myself passionately on one side of the Ken Dorsey fence or the other. So I think. The more we've talked this through, the more I I think initially I think I think I have a healthy dose of excitement and fear in the situation of Ken Dorsey. I will put the fear element more towards I think the ability for him to be accepted by this team, by the fan base, by anyone. It's going to take a hell of a lot for people to really lock in on believing in Ken Dorsey. Fear also in a in a way of is he just not the guy? That, of course, could 100% be a possibility. How many times a year is the guy in a position not the guy? A lot. And that, of course, has to be a fear of ours. Brian Dable's gone, right? The new guy fills in. Whoever it's going to be, you had to be somewhat fearful of the fact that, hey, this guy might not be Brian Dable. He might not even be close to Brian Dable. And how much does this impact the Buffalo Bills? How much? How good is the Buffalo Bills offense without Brian Dable? We have only had one year to see what it what it was, and it was still damn good. It just wasn't as good. That's a fear that you have to have. Is it ever going to get as good again? On the same side, though, to the excitement aspect of things, could it get better? Could the addition? of Dalton Kincaid here, wind up opening up a Pandora's box inside the playbook of Ken Dorsey, unlike we've ever seen, that has the Bills irrefutably one of the best offenses in the league, has Ken Dorsey unarguably a leading force to this new element of a Buffalo Bills offense that we that we haven't seen before. I think you can really argue both sides there. Ah. <sighs> Let's talk about one thing that has me really excited, and I just touched on it. I touched on him as being the potential, what I say, the uh, the mystery box on Rainbow Road that could really propel these Bills to the front, win the race. Dalton Kincaid. Above anything, going into camp this season overall, he is by far, as far as what I'm looking forward to seeing, what I'm looking forward to developing, it, 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 it's him by far. By the way, I'm glad to see everybody in here is uh, concerned for me in the wings. I, 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 am, I, I understand. Just want to let you guys know I do this for you. I got the wings downstairs cooling up by the second so that we can, that we can spend time together. 
And I don't want to eat them on here because I can't. I can't. I mean, I can chew gum and walk at the same time, but eating wings and and walking at the same time, it's a whole. It's like a. I mean, it's a moment eating the wings. You you gotta just eat the wings. I think if you're doing something else while eating wings, you're doing a disservice to the wings. They're not getting your full undivided attention. And a good chicken wing deserves your your full undivided attention. Um. He is a guy, I think, outside of Josh Allen, this is the most excited I've been, Donna Kincaid, this is the most excited I have been for any player on the Buffalo Bills, outside of a move they made in a trade free agency. So outside of, you know, LaShawn McCoy, uh, obviously Stephon Diggs, Terrell Owens back in the day, fill in it, whatever. Outside of any move like that, and we're talking strictly draft pick, this is the most excited I've been for any draft pick outside of Josh Allen in a long time, maybe ever. Everything about this I have absolutely loved. Everything. I love him as the guy. I think he's awesome. I think he's a perfect fit, just character-wise. You can just tell. You watch that video of him handing out the bracelets with uh, Kelsey at tight end U. I don't know. There's just something about athletes to me that you can tell whether or not they're just going to be a good guy and they're not going to be a problem. And you can just tell with him. Like, it's he's just not. And the Bills have been extraordinary at having the majority of the roster at all times be those type of guys. So, right off the bat, I love that. Two, I love the ability to have gotten him in which they, in the area in which they did. The whole way the draft went down, to me, it was just, I mean, it was just flawless. It was, it was absolutely flawless. On a night where I was very uncertain about what exactly was going to happen for these Buffalo Bills and what they were going to wind up doing, where they were going to wind up doing it, on that night where a lot of things in my mind pertaining to the Buffalo Bills were kind of all over the place, I was not expecting to have been this satisfied. And I was immediately satisfied, and I think the beauty of that is my immediate satisfaction has compounded since it has gotten more and more satisfactory. I think I just use every possible way to use the word satisfied. I think I use it in every tense imaginable. That was incredible. I don't think I'll ever do that again. I think I just used every single version of the word satisfied. But it kind of just goes to show you how excited I am about this draft pick. I was immediately stoked about it. You add in the extra layer that the Cowboys clearly wanted, and you immediately got to see the Jones family just cry about the fact that they weren't able to go up and get Dalton Kincaid. That added a massive cherry on top of this Kincaid Sunday. Uh, and then you go on to find out what a lot of people were thinking about him going into this draft, what a lot of people who knew his game were saying about him. And then as time developed on, you're hearing about the fact that not only was he the best tight end in this draft, he might have been the best overall offensive weapon in this draft. He might have the best overall hands in this draft. He might be the best tight end out of a recent NFL uh, draft in some time. What haven't you heard? You haven't heard a damn bad thing. That's for sure. And my God, the thought of having that type of asset on this team, how could it not be number one on your excitement list? Look at the teams that have superior tight end play. And the Bills' tight end play has been good. I'm talking superior, right? 
The Bills have damn good tight end play. Dawson Knox has been rock solid for this Buffalo Bills team. Rock solid. At times, even better. Two seasons ago, tied for the lead league in tight end touchdowns. Extraordinary. We're talking about a guy in in, in Dawson Knox who came into this league and immediately seemed like, based on his inability to consistently catch the ball, you, you didn't really, I don't know how high the expectation level was for Dawson Knox. And it seemed as though, including myself, I, I self-admittedly had thought at one time, I'll never forget this because me, Rico, and, and Joe Marino were on a, a show together and we were talking, and Joe Marino asked us if we were, how, what our thoughts were on Dawson Knox. And I remember at that time saying I was I was leaning more towards being kind of out on the on the Knox experiment initially. And I remember we had a whole conversation about it, and Marino was telling us that, you know, he had confidence, he had more confidence than he had uh, being, that he had been seeing get, you know, spoken on, I guess you could say. And he kind of had convinced me at the time to, to take a deep breath on Knox, give it time, and he was damn right. That's why I remember it so well. I remember at the time vividly thinking my, you know, my first initial reaction to that question was, I got to tell you, based on what I've seen, and it was very, very early at the time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit Credit card rewards? Tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Rookie year. And it's just it's just stupid to have a definitive take on that to begin with. But the overall topic of conversation was what are your thoughts on them? And my thoughts were they weren't over the moon. And uh, I immediately cha- I mean, I, I, I changed my mind almost instantly the following season. And I have absolutely loved Dawson Knox's uh, game ever since. And what he has been for this team, he's been one of the better assets to this offense since his rookie season. Or afterwards, I should, I should say. Um, with that said, there are realms to the tight end position that are unlike any other real, they're unlike any other realm of position group in the NFL. I mean, the, the quarterbacks, right? That's a whole different ball game. We all get that. The quarterbacks are the ones where you, you know, that's the, the, they're immediately tiered out no matter what. You're talking about quarterbacks, and you're immediately talking about who's better, who's worse. And we all know that the NFL divides quarterbacks, and we all divide quarterbacks into very intricate groups. You either got your, you got your best of the best, your top three, your top four, and that's interchangeable. The, the common list it, it, right now, it, and I think you're nuts if, it's, if this isn't your list, it's Mahomes. He is number one. There's no argument. I, I don't want to hear it. And then a- after that, it is an interchangeable uh, deck of either Mahomes or excuse me, Burrow, Josh Allen, and you know whoever else people 
try to throw in there. You know, you got Herbert being thrown in there sometimes. You got Trevor Lawrence being thrown in there sometimes. Lamar Jackson being thrown in there, whatever. Jalen Hurts. You name it, 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 it's interchangeable. But at the end of the day, we all know, if, if, if you've been watching this game over the last couple of years, how you could not have Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, and Joe Burrow to some capacity at the top of that list, then I don't know what you're watching. And then you go from there, and there's a lot of argument as to what, what the top 10 is and whatever the hell else. Either way, quarterback has become that position where you can't even talk about it unless you're tearing out guys and ranking them against one another. We don't do that so much with the tight end position, and the reason for that is because it is pretty much defined by two categories. Travis Kelsey and George Kittle, 30 other teams and their tight ends. Now, I think Dawson Knox is towards the top of that second list. But the difference between Travis Kelsey, and I still put George Kittle in there, although I I think Travis Kelsey has separated himself from George Kittle. I, I don't think that that's even... I don't even think it needs to be said, but George Kittle's still second best tight end in the league. And for a while there, before this, what I think to be pretty clear separation, there was genuine argument as to whether or not one was better than the other. That that was a, that was a, a debate, but it was a debate amongst those two and those two alone for the most part. And what do you notice about teams that have that element at tight end? Well, they just so happen to be almost unstoppable. Someone, I had this conversation with somebody a handful of months ago. I forget when. And they were talking, we were talking about if you could have one player to run a play with, if you needed a touchdown and you were in the the red zone, and you needed one player in the history of the NFL to score, not including quarterback. If you needed one player in the history of the NFL to score, my genuine answer that in that moment and my genuine answer today is Travis Kelsey. I have never seen a player, no matter what you throw at the guy, because they everybody knows it's coming, no matter what you do to defend him, It does not matter. He gets open no matter what. He catches the ball no matter what. He gets in the end zone no matter. I've never seen anything like it. The inability to defend uh, Travis Kelsey, I, I have never seen anything like it. On a weekly basis... Every single week, it feels like. I I will watch the Chiefs, and there will be a moment where you'll just say, how in the hell does he get that open again and again and again? Everybody knows it is coming. Everybody. It is a guarantee, and it doesn't matter. The guy every week is the most impactful player on that offense, not named Patrick Mahomes. And the point I'm making here is the difference between that and the second half of the list, which is legitimately 30 other teams in the NFL and their tight ends, is astronomical. And if if Dalton Kincaid is that or some sort of version of that, do you realize 
what this offense becomes, what this offense is. It's extraordinary. And that, to me, even the thought of that is why I can't think of anything that would make me more excited going into this season from a the standpoint of, of, of a particular player and, and, frankly, overall, just this, this team as a whole. I genuinely believe we have something going on here in Don and Kincaid that could be, it could be, it really could be something. And I don't think you've felt that way about any draft pick this early, at least, since Josh Allen. Of course, you draft Trey White. And you're, you're feel, you feel good about that. You draft Tremaine Edmonds, you feel good about that. I think there's a difference between feeling good and feeling like there could be an element to this pick that could be seismic. And whether that winds up coming to fruition or not is, is honestly, it's a moot point. Because either way, I, I haven't felt that way about anybody else. Whether it happens or not, it's a different story. Feeling that way beforehand... Could have happened with any of these any of these other players. I could have felt that way about anybody else. I didn't. There's something about this pick. And there's something about the tight end position. And it seems as though, and it, and it kind of does seem like the cycle is due for a renewal here. It kind of seems like they're, they're, they're you know, it, doesn't it, doesn't it kind of seem throughout the last 20 years at any given point in time, there's always like two or three tight ends that are significantly above the rest. You know, early, early on, right? You had Tony Gonzalez. We're talking about early 2000s. You had Tony Gonzalez, Shannon Sharp. And then at one point, you had Rob Gronkowski. Even on that, uh, even on that, Team in itself. You had Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez running a two tight end set that was lethal, unstoppable. And then when it seemed as though nobody was better than Gronkowski, then you had Kittle emerge and Kelsey emerge. It's always just felt like there's been levels that have come and gone. And the Kelsey Kittle element of this tight end lineage, I guess. It seemed like it's been around a long time here. Yeah, Rev saying Jimmy Graham. I mean, it, there was plenty of great tight ends. Um, trying to think of one more that would be part of the Gronkowski era. It just felt like Gronk was on a whole other planet in, 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 its, uh, in itself, though. But the, the, the point rings true, though. Gronk's another perfect example. I mean, the, the any team, any team that has had, um, oh, see, another, another good one, Eric coming in, Antonio Gates, another great one, another great one. You know what's funny, Ronald? I, uh, Jeremy Shockey came to my mind. That was another guy I wanted to say. I was wondering if that would ruffle some feathers or not because it feels like that would be a, a, a hot take, but I don't know how hot it is. Jeremy Shockey in his prime was phenomenal. Real good answer there. Brandon, come in here saying Mark Andrews. See, I think great. This is a perfect example. I think Mark Mark Andrews is phenomenal. 
I think Mark Andrews, though, I think he is like the iceberg top of that second tier. I don't. I still don't lump Mark Andrews up there. I can't. Because I just don't know how close it is between the top of that game and the top of the next level of it. I think the perfect launch pad, the perfect starting point for the top of that second tier is Mark Andrews. I think that's probably where I'd start. And I think that just goes to show you the difference between the elite level play at the tight end position and every team you've seen have one of these tight ends has experienced tremendous offensive success. Every single one of them. Hell, the 49ers with a quarterback situation that looks like my JV high school team are still finding a way to be one of the most prolific offenses in the entire league. And George Kittle is a cornerstone to that. The Kansas City Chiefs, they're one of the greatest offenses in the history of the sport. The Rob Gronkowski uh, New England Patriots were one of, if not the most efficient I mean, in, in any sport, in any sport, one of the most pro, like the, the most efficient and properly executed units ever, ever. Just absolute surgery. Dink and dunk, nickel and dime, touchdown. Remember, it's all it was. All it was. And he was an absolute pivotal part of that. And then early on in the early 2000s, dominance. Tony, Gonga- Tony Gonzalez and Shannon Sharp, absolute domination. And both those offenses, top of the league or towards it. If Dalton Kincaid winds up being a version of that, it is, it, it's extraordinary. And I think right now the hype and the potential is there. And that's why I am so over the moon excited about him. So if we're talking about excitement going into the year, he is by far number one. Let's jump back over to fear. I think there's an element of fear here for me, and I'm assuming there's got to be some of that in you. That this year feels like if it ain't this year, then I don't know. Then I just don't know. I think last year it felt like even if you didn't win it, it just kind of felt like there, you know, there was there's time. And time just continuously seems to be getting shorter and shorter. And there seems to be less and less of it. Then I mean that's just the way time goes, except and the NFL is like dog years. Each NFL season's like dog years. It doesn't feel like just one season. When you lose one season, kind of feels like you lost a hefty portion of a particular team, the longevity of a particular player, the prime of a particular player, right? And that's why last year was so heartbreaking. It felt like that was the best Bills team you could possibly field, and you had just one of the most disappointing playoff losses that you could have imagined. I think that there's an element of fear this year going into it that it just feels like if this doesn't happen this year, and if it doesn't happen, uh, especially in the capacity in which last year didn't happen, where it's just an absolute petering out at the end of the year that was, I mean, I don't know, how, many, how many adjectives do I have to continuously come up for this? It was just abysmal. And if that happens again, I think that there is a fear this year that one, it could happen again. We've saw it. And two, 
if it does happen, what does the future of the Buffalo Bills look like? Because we have now seen what would be gradual, yet all the same, a downward declining uh, st- uh, stock here to some degree. The, the playoff success has been an incremental step downward every year the last handful of seasons. The last, uh, what? The last four years. The last four years have been an incremental step down for the Buffalo Bills in the playoffs. And I think that there is some sort of, of fear level there that that after the way last year ended, watching the other teams in the AFC get better and better and then watching what it's going to take to have to get through in order to get to the Super Bowl, there's an element of fear there that feels like if it's not this year, with everybody else getting better, with the Bills not getting any, uh, you know, they're not getting any younger from the wide receiver position with Stephon Diggs, right? They're not getting any additional years tacked on to Josh Allen's prime if you if you lose one of them, right? There's only so many of those. Uh, it just feels like there's an element of fear there that if you don't go into this year and dominate, then there could be a a, a sign of major pull pullback and regression here. There is there is part of me that fears that. The last time we watched this Buffalo Bills team out on the field, it was one of the worst performances I have seen from this team in a very long time, and I'd argue it was perhaps the worst performance under the McDermott Josh Allen era. Given the given the, the you know the weight of it, I think you could probably say the worst performance by this team was against the Urban Meyer coach Jacksonville Jaguars. That that game was beyond pathetic. In my opinion, the worst regular season loss by a by a hefty margin for the Josh Allen era Buffalo Bills. But that was a regular season game. And it didn't define who the Bills were. I'm pretty sure after that game, the Bills, I think they might have lost one more game if that, after that one, it wasn't like it derailed anything. They immediately got back on, on track. Last year, it, it, we're, we're talking divisional playoff game at home off of a game where you didn't look good at all and you probably lose to anybody else but what? Was it Sky? What the hell was his name? I was going to say Skylar White. I was going to say Skylar White, but it was Skylar Thompson. Mine as well, though. I mean, it might as well have been Skylar White, you know? I mean, that was the absolute worst-case scenario at quarterback for the Miami Dolphins. That's what the Bills went up against in the wild card last year at home, and they, they had to get blessed to get the hell out of there alive. The last time we saw this team, it wasn't good. It was not. It was it was arguably bad. So, you know, there's going to be plenty of people out there who tell you, I, I, and I hate this. I hate this. It's one of my most hated aspects of being a fan of anything. This happens with everything that I in my in my life that I like. Everything. You have a very very passionate group of people for certain things. Like us with the Bills, uh, I'm a you know this. I'm a huge Dave Matthews fan. That that fandom is intense. I know it's just a band in music, but you if you're not a part of it, you would not believe it. It is it is 
indescribable if you don't know anything about it. It's nuts, right? There's portions of all, and, that, and, that, and this goes for everything you could imagine. Things that you don't even know about. There are hardcore fan bases for that you couldn't even fathom their loyalty and their passion for it, right? And in these pockets of people, all of them, there are those who believe that whatever they're a fan of, that they simply can do no wrong. And therefore, they will not criticize anything they do. And if anybody else does, they're a fake fan. They are a moron. They don't know what they're talking about. They're flat out wrong. This happens all the time. One of the more irritating ones I experience all the time, I'll talk about the one with the music scene and how it relates to the Bills here because it's, 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 it's insane, the parallel. It's, it's like a paradox because it's two completely different things with the exact same situation happening on both sides. So for Dave Matthews, his catalog's insane. The, the amount of songs he has are wild, and some songs are way more rare and are played way less often than others. You all know the song Ants Marching. That song's been played 10 trillion times. There's also songs like People, People by Dave Matthews that hasn't been played by him or the band since 1993, right? So say you go to a show like I just did in Saratoga, and he plays a song where he plays a song that hadn't been played in 12 years. Everybody's going nuts. The set list has a bunch of rare songs that haven't been played in a while. It's unbelievable. It's off the charts. It's phenomenal, right? That was quite clearly an unprecedented top-tier performance that is above just about anything else. We all agree on that, right? So that would be the equivalent of the Bills playing exceptionally, like against the Patriots there in the playoffs. What was a, what, Give me the, the bad thing you're saying about the Bills that game. I mean, are you kidding? You couldn't find one. The concert, all great songs. And if you're going to complain about a couple of crap ones or whatever in the grand scheme of it, well, then you, you you are truly looking for the worst. But with that, when you have those type of performances on the stage, on the field, they have to be better than something, right? Which indicates that there are performances that are worse. With the Dave Matthews community, if you go to a show and they play a bunch of radio hits and it just seems like that particular night Dave's energy isn't all that there and it's just not that great. The crowd isn't all that into it. They're not, you know, they don't know the music. They're not singing, whatever. If you were to say that show wasn't good or that set list stunk or I hated it or whatever, there would be a mob of people telling you that you, uh, you're you not a real fan of the band you, even though you've gone and seen him a hundred some odd times all over the world, uh, you're, you, you don't listen to his music and the true meaning, of, yada, yada, yada. There's a million different things. Just because you thought that that one particular show just wasn't all that special, wasn't great. It's the exact same thing here. There are people who believe that Josh Allen can absolutely do no wrong. He deserves no blame for anything. Nothing he does is wrong. When the Bills lose, it's never their fault. It's somebody else's. It's the ref's fault. It's McDermott's fault. It's uh, the other coach, whatever. You name it. There, 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 is, there is a ton of that, right? There's a ton of that. And it feels as though you have to, in order to truly rationalize expectation, 
And I think level-headedly look towards the year. You, you, you have to have some sort of fear level towards the surrounding opponents. And I think the element of fear for me going into this season is the fact that the last time we did see them, it was one of those awful performances, just terrible. You've seen the great ones, right? But you've also seen some real poor ones. And 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 the last one you saw might have been the poorest of them all. And with that, you look around the landscape of the uh, the league now, especially the AFC going into this year, and I think there's an easy way there to have some element of fear in thinking, well, the last time I saw these bills, it was not good. And the first thought I the first thing I'm greeted to going into this season is the highest level of competition that this AFC or frankly any conference, any division, whatever has ever had in the league. This is by far the toughest that any team or that any conference has been. And it's by far now the toughest to win the Super Bowl, I think, than it's ever been in the AFC. It is extraordinarily hard. The Bills very well could be the best, second-best team in the AFC. Sometimes you have to wonder if it even matters. It's going to come down to just any given Sunday like they all do, but especially in these playoffs. All these teams are good enough to win at any given time. I think you look over in the NFC, and I don't know if I particularly believe that. Now, of course, it's football. Anything can happen. Anything, you know, crazy stuff happens weekly. But there's a lot of things that could happen in the AFC that I don't think are genuinely crazy. You know, like if you were to see the uh, last year, if you were to see the Colts, or not the Colts, let's think of a better example. Last year, if you were if you were to see, uh, I don't know, any, any any bottom feeder. If you were to see the Arizona Cardinals beat the Kansas City Chiefs, right, you would be shocked. There'd be an, a level of, of shock there. That's because it's obvious. One team's clearly better than the rest. There's so many teams in the AFC this year that are capable of contending. I don't see many shocks in the AFC in, at any given time. We, I think I've shared this with you. There are like eight teams in the AFC that would just genuinely, it would not shock me at all if they made the AFC championship and or Super Bowl. It just wouldn't. That's what it is. I think you could make a legitimate argument for about eight or so teams in the AFC to go all the way, and I think all of them have legs. I think all of them are coherent arguments. And yes, the Bills are certainly one of them. What I'm getting at here is there is an element of fear here that I think also coincides with excitement, but it is more so fear. And that is, is the AFC just so good that even if the Bills have an extraordinary season, they just end up being a casualty to their surroundings? Because that's kind of what they were against the Kansas City Chiefs two years ago. Think about it. The Bills weren't any worse than the Chiefs that day. They were just a casualty to their surrounding. The Chiefs were just as good, if not better than them, right? And they wound up facing a guy, a team in the Chiefs that were probably the only team in that entire playoffs that were going to be able to compete at that level with the Buffalo Bills. That's the unfortunate reality. They were probably the only team. They were a victim 
of running into the only other team that could do what the Bills did that night. This year, I think all of these AFC teams could be a victim of running into a team that can compete with them at any given, on any given night at any given level. I genuinely think that. So much talent, especially at the quarterback position. So much talent, especially on the offensive side of the ball. There are so many opportunities this year for things to go south for nearly any team that you think is a front runner in the AFC at any given time. It's going to be beyond competitive. Beyond competitive. It excites me. Oh, Eric, believe me, don't get me wrong. That goes without saying. Eric's saying uh, the Bills were a victim of terrible coaching that night. Well, they were a victim of a, a, a very terrible 13-second stretch of coaching, to say the least. Minimum. But what I'm saying is two years ago, think about it. In those playoffs, was there another team that exhibited the ability to be able to do what the Bills did that night other than the Kansas City Chiefs? They could have ran into anybody else. And that is why... I will always be of the belief that if the Bills get out of those 13 seconds alive, they are Super Bowl champions today. I am a 100% staunch believer in that. That game, that was the Super Bowl to me. And it still blows my mind the Chiefs weren't able to get on the following week. But since he had their number there for three consecutive games, that would just seem to be a thing that they couldn't get over the hump there. Um, they were the only other team, it seemed like to me. I didn't think the Rams were on their level, and I just thought the way the Bills were playing, I, I you got a tough time convincing me that they lose to the Bengals. It seemed like the Bengals had the Chiefs number. They certainly didn't have the Bills at that time. But that, it's all hearsay. It's all a bunch of, you know, who knows. The whole oh, the, Their overall point here is the, the element of fear here, it, it is everywhere outside of the organization everywhere you look at the schedule here and i and I, I look at it often i got it as my phone background i see two games that to me and you know once again you know how it is in the nfl it's just like i mentioned earlier that urban meyer jags game that was a game i had circled as an easy easy w we all know how that went and that happens all the time but if we're looking at it just based on our common sense knowledge of, of you know teams and where they're going to be at this season, if you look at the Bills' schedule right now, there might be two games that pop out to me, two, as ones that I look at and think, I don't know if I'll have a overwhelming amount of anxiety this week or at least some varying degree of it. Obviously, some weeks will be more than others. But to me, there's only two weeks where I look at the opponent and I think to myself, I don't, I don't know how nervous I'm going to be that week. And that's week two and that's week three. And that is pretty much it. Week two, you got the Raiders. I just don't think they're – I mean, Josh Jacobs might not even play in week two. He took a uh, – that just came out today. Josh Jacobs, who was in that whole running back contract dispute there, he took a plane home today. He is not going to be showing up to practice for the Raiders. So he – very much looks like he could threaten a, 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 a sit-out here. And that could very easily trickle into week two if he sits out at the beginning of the year. Who knows? Uh, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo, and God only knows what's happening there in that situation, if he's even going to be cleared to play based on his health. 
the Raiders are in flux. That's a game you look at and you and you think, you know, there's high, the Bills would have to implode to lose that game. Uh, and then the following week, the Washington Commanders. I just think the Bills are on another level than Washington. I think that Washington is one of those teams that can get you at any given time. They just always seem to have that type of play style under Ron Rivera. They play very, very hard, and they are very uh, – uh, they're, they're, they're a pain in the ass, I guess you could say. But it just from a, from a competitive standpoint, talent standpoint, the Bills are uh, head and shoulders above uh, the Washington Commanders. So I look at those two games, and, okay, now, mind you, that's after playing the Jets, and that game is going to be, it's going to be it's going to be much more than meets the eye. There is so much, I mean, I cannot wait, I, I cannot wait to be in that stadium. I, 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 uh, talk about one other thing I'm excited for, that, that game, that game, the, the, the leadoff game, I mean, I was in, in insanely excited about last year kicking the year off against the Super Bowl champions with all the hype for the Bills I mean couldn't have been more excited but there's something different about this one one I'm going to be able to be there I wasn't at SoFi didn't drop 10k on a ticket to go out to SoFi 500 bucks to park I'm going to be in MetLife for this one right so there's that of course the division rivalry the first game for Aaron Rodgers being a New York Jet that place is going to be swarmed with every bandwagon Jets fan that has ever existed. Every Jets fan who hasn't watched a snap of this team in seven years is going to find their old jersey, throw it on, and walk their ass into MetLife. And I'm going to be right in the middle of all that. And I can't wait to see it. Because there's going to be one of two things that go down that night, and it's going to be big either way. Huge. One, the Bills win, and all this bullshit you keep hearing about the Jets, whether earned or not, we'll see. They very well could earn whatever praise they're getting right now. So the Bills go out and win, though. You're not getting the entire panel picking the AFC East without at least one person throwing the Bills in there. Now, on the other hand, if they lose, you're going to get a hell of a lot more than that with the addition of people doubling down on their on their takes already and immediately thinking that they're justified and backed up based on one game. It's a huge game. Absolutely massive game. And you have to think about this now that it matters more than ever. These AFC East games are going to be crucial at the end of the year based on the fact that you're going to have three teams vying for a playoff spot. The Bills, the Jets, and the Patriots, excuse me, and the Dolphins. All three of them. These games are going to be monumental for playoff seating. And you have one right out of the gates. In a very hostile environment, that'll be the most pumped up that building has been probably since Brett Favre was there. And it's 9-11, too. So you know the theatrics out on the field are probably have that huge flag. I mean, the, the, the environment itself is going to be nuts. Nuts. Monday night football, not to mention, of course. I mean, everything about that is just going to be insane. It's going to be insane. Um... But you, but that's just one of the games. You could make an argument to the excitement level or the insanity level or the competitiveness, whatever, about this is what I'm getting at, just about every one of these games on this schedule. The only other one I look at that as a throwaway game is the Tampa Bay Bucks, but that's not until, what do you got here, week eight? Week eight. 
You got that two-week stretch there where I think it looks pretty favorable, but then you go right into the Dolphins and then the Jags and then the Giants and then the Patriots. I give them, you know, I, I, the Bucks are going to be awful, I think, unless I'm just, unless Baker Mayfield reignites his career. I don't see it. But then you got the Bengals. You got the Sean McVay-led Broncos now, with what I believe to be a better Russell Wilson. It has to be. The Jets again, the the reigning NFC champions by week, the reigning AFC champions and the reigning Super Bowl champions. The Cowboys, which, of course, you know, out of any NFC team you had to draw, they're probably the third best. The Chargers that are always going to be a, a, a tough team. They're stacked. I think they have a better year this year. I, I say that every year, but I just they, I don't know how they couldn't. It's got to happen at some point. The Chargers are way too good. It has to happen at some point. And then you finish the game out of the season out with two division games, and you always know how division games are. This schedule is stacked. The silver lining to it and the benefit of it is that almost every team in the AFC is playing the exact same division, or excuse me, the exact same schedule. You look at any AFC team schedule this year, and it is just, I mean, it is a gauntlet, all of them. So as fearful as I am about the 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 parity in the AFC and how that could, of course, trip up the Bills, how you couldn't be excited about it is a whole other thing. I mean, you love football. And if you love football, you absolutely love what's going on in the AFC right now. It doesn't get better. This is going to be some of the best football you could ever possibly imagine. The Bills are going to be right there. Right there which is, of course, another reason to be excited. But I think that's another one that treads the line of both sides. Fearful in the sense that it is that good and anybody could trip you up. Excitement in the sense that every game is going to be do or die. I mean, every game is going to be massive, and every single game is going to be must-watch TV. And go figure, the execs over at the NFL knew that. The Bills are playing, I mean, you you, you know the, you know the drill here. They, they, they don't play a 1 o'clock game after week seven, I think, they don't play a one o'clock game until New Year's Eve. So, it goes without saying just how big it is. Another one of those things that I find to be both sides. A lot of these seem to be that way. One other thing that I find to be a bit fearful about and we'll do one more thing I'm excited about before we get into... We're going to talk... Oh, we are. We're talking about movies. We're going to talk about movies before we wrap up tonight. I have to. When saw Barbie and Oppenheimer. I got to talk about them both. Um, the one thing I am a bit fearful of is... I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. There's a looming fear that I think we all have with the Bills about it going completely like completely south again, I guess. And I'm not necessarily completely that that isn't something that that consumes my mind at all. I think there's just a part of me that fears with everybody kind of trying to turn the page on the bills you do you can't help but be fearful of that actually happening um i don't foresee it 
and I just think this team's far too good. I just think going into this year with everyone down on them the way they are, you you always have to fear the fact that that winds up coming true and everybody else gets to kind of they get to pretend like they 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 knew that that was coming, even though there was no way they could have possibly have known it. There's part of me that that is a you know there, there is a bit fearful, or that is a bit fearful of a, of a dramatic drop off. I just don't foresee it happening. And I don't know how it could. But I think we were so conditioned for so long to anticipate just the, the end of the cliff somewhere that I think that there's part of, the, at least me, that at times it wonders that when it all just kind of stops. And when you hear people talk about it, you just hope that they're not proved right. That's all. At least that's how I feel. But as far as being like overwhelmingly fear, like fearing or fearful, the more we talk through it tonight, the more I find that the fears that I do have are also some of the things I'm looking forward to the most. I do think the biggest overwhelming fear for me is what we just talked about. I do think that it is the the competitiveness in this conference. I just think that of all the times the Bills decided to get good, so did everybody else. And I do think you have a very good argument to say the Bills are better than the vast majority of these teams. But by how much is to be, you know, you could argue that to your passed out. You could also argue these teams are better or, or better or are or, or on par. Either way, no matter what you want to do, I just think that it, it, the fact that an argument exists with so many of these teams, just it, that serves point enough to me. Uh, the Bills are going to have to have an unbelievable year or at the very least an unbelievable playoff run. You look at what the playoffs are going to be when they get in, and this is, this is you know, anticipating not getting the one seed, which they haven't gotten, and there's only one bye week to be had out there. You assume, you know, if they don't get it, they're going to have to play three playoff games that are going to be uh, – it's, it's just going to be – It's just going to be insane. It's going to be insane. I just can't stop looking at this. The schedule is just. The part of me that you, you do. I'm excited to see, though, how it develops. Because like last year, and this happens every year. So you look at this now, but then you wonder what's going to happen. Because. Last year, if you were to look at the opening of the Bills' schedule, right, you would have saw the Rams and the Titans, which we all did, and we were like, man, this is this is murderer's row here to kick the year off. You got the Super Bowl champs and the former one seed in the AFC. Both teams wound up blowing, and consequently, the Bills kicked the living hell out of both of them. So we shall see. But just on paper here, I think that's what I got to be the most concerned about. Just the other competition. Are the Bills going to be able to separate themselves from more teams than they've ever had to in the past? The nice thing, though, all 16 or all 15 other AFC teams got to go through the same thing. They have to go through the same thing. Nobody's got it easier than the next. I think the one team that may have it. A bit easier, maybe a slight disadvantage or a slight advantage, 
is the Jacksonville Jaguars, just because I think that their division is easier than any of the other teams that you could argue have an elite quarterback and are a legitimate top contender or could be. I think that their division is weaker than all the rest. So therefore, I think that they do have a bit of an ability to gain additional wins within that division, whereas other teams are going to be fighting tooth and nail to get out of their division with as many wins possible. Um, other than that, and I mean, you could argue that too if you wanted to. Depends on what the Tennessee Titans end up being. But either way, the rest of the, I mean, the rest of the conference, every division, it, just, just loaded. Crazy. Matt coming in here, he's saying, are you excited about 12, are you as excited about 12 personnel as I am? I think this tight end tandem will be the best in the league. Yeah, I mean, that is by far, it is on the shortest of short lists of things I'm most excited about. Talked about it earlier if you weren't in here, but we talked about the most excited, uh, the most exciting element of the season for me, um, you know, above obviously just the season itself. Uh, is Dalton Kincaid and and watching what he's going to bring to this team, uh, watching the immediate impact, watching how Dorsey uses him, watching the development of him. It's the most excited I've been for a player in a long time. Um, and we we went over a bunch of reasons for it, but ultimately, based on the potential alone, I don't know how you couldn't be just through the moon stoked about the potential of what Dalton Kincaid can bring to this team. And we get our first glimpse of that in seven weeks from tonight. And that's got me just beyond excited. The one other thing I do think I'm, I'm most excited for, and this is just kind of, you know, this is pretty straightforward, but I think it deserves to be said. I'm very excited to see how Josh Allen handles this year. This This year seems like one where he seems... I don't know. It's a, he's in a different space. I think he's in a different spot than he's been in. He's more famous than he's ever been. He's under probably more pressure than he's ever been in. And he's starting to get more criticism, I think, than ever, just based on not necessarily not be, I mean, not playing well. I think it's more so not living up to these expectations. And Patrick Mahomes will do that. You know, when you got two Super Bowl champions, uh, two Super Bowl rings, four straight AFC appear, uh, championship appearances, multiple MVPs, yeah, the, the bar will continue to be sky high. You don't live up to that. You go on the cover of Madden, whatever else, you get your, these critics. I'm excited to see what Josh Allen does this year. Very. He said himself this is the most determined he's ever been uh, going into a season. Most focused he's ever been on football. I think that statement alone, if we take him for his word, that's something we have to be excited about. All in all, though, I'm just more excited. All in all, above anything else, I'm just excited for this season. I'm just excited for this thing to start. And we are two damn days away from some semblance of Buffalo Bills uh, football getting underway. can almost taste it. Wednesday the 26th, two days away. Practice starts at 9.45 a.m. at St. John Fisher. And to, to some degree, I guess you could say, the Buffalo Bills 2023 uh, season will commence. And then what do we got here? When's the, when's the first preseason game here? 
Yeah, the 12th. So not too far. And if I'm not mistaken, the Hall of Fame game is like right around the corner, if I'm not mistaken. August 3rd. Browns-Jets Hall of Fame game. When's August 3rd? That's got to be like, uh, yeah, seven, eight. It's like 10 days away. We're going to have actual pro football logos on the field in 10 days. Crazy. All right. We're nearly two and a half in the books. And uh, before we wrap up the show tonight, wanted to give you my thoughts on 2023's biggest blockbuster weekend at the movie theater. It was Barbenheimer weekend. Barbie out Friday. Oppenheimer out Friday. And I saw both of them. Was supposed to see them both in the same day. Saw Barbie last night. Uh, the theater was at capacity for Oppenheimer afterwards, even though we had tickets. So we just pushed it to today. So I saw him back and forth. Now, I should mention last week, I saw uh, The Sound of Freedom, the, saw, uh, the movie that's kind of like a documentary to some degree about uh, child trafficking in America and all over the world. Totally check that one out. It's not getting all the blockbuster buzz because there's not a whole lot of marketing in it. The initial, the, the overall ob objective of the movie was to just spread awareness of this terrible stuff that's happening. Um, real stuff. That movie was great. Loved that. Saw that last week. I highly recommend that. But uh, as far as the box office battle of the year, it was this. And I, it wasn't necessarily a battle, which I found intriguing the whole time. It was more like this unity of two completely polar opposite movies coming out on the same day, and people were embracing that, and therefore, like, going head in to both of them, uh, whether they had an overwhelming desire to see either one or not. I was beyond excited to see Oppenheimer. I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan. Out of my top ten movies, I would say at least, at least four or five of them are Christopher Nolan movies. The Dark Knight, Memento, uh, Inception, Interstellar, just all absolutely incredible movies. I think Christopher Nolan on the short list of some of the greatest directors ever. And this was his newest film, and it was being touted as, you know, the best movie of the year, three hours, no CGI, all practical effects. I love that stuff. Killer um, cast. Just couldn't wait to see it. Anything Christopher Nolan makes, I'm going to see. And then there was Barbie, which I thought was a – Based on the cast, the idea, I think I knew at the time, you know, all of these movies are kind of, they're gimmicky to some degree, but I am a huge Margot Robbie fan. I think she's great. I think she's been one of the best actress, actresses of uh, the last several several years. And she's like the most perfect candidate in the world to play Barbie. She looks just like her. And I was interested to see what they were going to do with it. Was it going to be fun? Was it going to be, um, you know, one of those movies that just was, heartwarming and enjoyable. That was all I was looking for out of that one. I'm not winning, looking to win an Oscar there. That was what I had, the expectations I had going into it. With Oppenheimer, it was Christopher Nolan. The expectations were high. Couldn't wait to see it. And my biggest thing going into it was, you know, how am I going to feel afterwards? Because with any Christopher Nolan movie, it's kind of like you have to dissect everything. 
you have to almost go back and rewatch it three times in order to appreciate it. And that is kind of how I feel right now. Um, and then with Barbie, I was just going into it with absolutely no expectation. I was just looking to be entertained. I was hoping for it to be fun. That's all it was. I was hoping for it to be fun, good story, couple laughs, and you walk out of there like, oh, that was cool, or that was cute, and that was fun. That's all I was looking for. And this is going to be a rant. This is going to be an all-timer. I'm telling you. Let's start with Oppenheimer. Let's start with the good. Let's start with the good. We'll kick things off with the good. We will save the worst for last. Oppenheimer was exactly what you'd expect from Christopher Nolan. If you are a fan of Christopher Nolan's movies, if you've seen them all, and I'm sure most of you have seen at least one, Dark Knight probably the highest on the list, you know that his movies got a, a, a tone to them. If you're watching his movies, you know they're a Christopher Nolan movie. The score is always very similar, incredible music, just uh, gets you on the edge of your seat without doing anything other than matching the visuals with the music. It's incredibly done, incredibly well done. The editing is extraordinary. A lot of jump cuts, a lot of quick moving parts. All of his movies are like that. Oppenheimer was no different. Even though it was three hours long, it never felt like it dragged on. There are parts of it that get confusing because it is so long and there's so much going on and there's different intertwining time periods. At times, you can get a bit confused. But I thought it was an incredibly awesome way to pretty much walk through the shoes of a guy that was facing probably one of the biggest moral dilemmas you could ever face as a human being. And you pretty much live through that vicariously through, you know, the screen and through uh, the guy who played Oppenheimer. What is his name? Cillian there or whatever. I forget his Cillian Murphy, is it? He did an extraordinary job. The acting was unbelievable. The cinematography, incredible. Uh, music, terrific. All in all, great. I feel right now, after just seeing it a few hours ago, that it, once again, like any Christopher Nolan movie, I have to see it again. I, there is so much about it that I think you could just overlook a ton of dialogue, a ton of different characters, and over three hours, I think it's really easy to forget certain dialogue and forget certain characters, especially when they're not in it the entire time. But the overall story and the overall way it was done, I thought it was great. I thought it was incredibly in line with everything Christopher Nolan does, and I don't know. Just thought it was I thought it was a damn good movie, just like all of his. I don't know if I would rank it above any other Christopher Nolan movies that are already at the top of my list. I don't think I'm doing that. Nothing's getting bumped down. This doesn't those other movies to me are just untouchable. How great they are. This one also isn't in if you're expecting this from a Christopher Nolan movie, this would be the one thing I would tell you before you go in. Don't expect I mean, this is a movie based on a true story, so don't expect this twist like all Christopher Nolan movies seem to have, or, or not, I don't even know if twist is the right word. Don't expect this mind bender where you can't figure out what the hell happened. Because you do know what happened. What I would say to that point is that you're more so at the end trying to digest everything that happened and then pair it up based on when it happened. You're not necessarily asking yourself what happened. At the end of Interse uh, Inception, at the end of Insta uh, Interstellar, you're sitting there like, what the hell just happened? And you can interpret it a million different ways. This isn't as 
much like that just because it's based on a true story, but it still has that overwhelming Christopher Nolan feeling, and it still has that element of uh, uncertainty at the end where you're still trying to figure out not what the puzzle pieces are, but how exactly you would line them up. And I think it only would make sense, really, if you saw it. Either way, though, if you're thinking about seeing that one, highly recommend it. It is three hours, which is a lot. Three hours for any movie is a lot. Like The Irishman, for instance, I'll I'll give an example. That one was like, what, three and a half hours? That movie felt like three and a half hours. This one doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because it does a great job of, of cramming in a lot of this guy's life, how he got up to the point of creating the nuclear bomb and then how it kind of affected his life. You get all of that. And that obviously takes time. But over that time, you get so many different parts of the guy's life. So it never feels like it drags on. So highly recommend Oppenheimer. If you're thinking about seeing it, go see it. Let's close out the show with the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life, the Barbie movie. I have been trying to find the words, the right words to use to describe just how much of an abomination the Barbie movie was. The the, the Barbie movie was quite literally, it, it was top five worst film I have ever seen in my life, will ever see in my life. I don't know who that movie was made for. I don't know who the target audience was other than people who passionately hate the entire male species while simultaneously also thinking that no human being for the most part has any bit of uh, decency inside of them. It was the most hateful, spiteful, pointless, nasty movie ever. And the way that the movie was marketed, you would never in a million years have seen this coming. The only way that you'll be able to understand what I'm saying is if you see it. And the reason I recommend seeing it is I'd love to hear from you what you think. I've loved talking to others who have seen this already because for the most part, and when I say most part, I mean for the entirety, I haven't talked to anybody else who's seen it that hasn't felt this way. My girlfriend, we saw it together. Her sister saw it. We all talked about it. All three of us had the exact same opinion. It was truly one of the worst pieces of anything ever. Um, I could look past all of the forced everything that that movie tried to be. I could look past the forced messaging, the forced... Whatever. It was quite literally a two-hour political cartoon mixed in with a two-hour infomercial on pretty much hatred, really. I could look past all of that if it was even remotely likable. If it was even remotely entertaining. And it wasn't. On top of just being the most insufferable preachy movie you're 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 watching a world of 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 action figures try telling you that the world is essentially the worst place on the planet and that every man on earth is 
a piece of shit and every woman on earth is the greatest thing of all time and when you combine the two they can't coexist the over overlapping message of the whole movie was that men and women cannot coexist on earth all men are awful all women no matter what are incredible there should be no combination of the two together in order to work together it shows no redeeming qualities of either side of the uh, the fence here women or men it makes them both out to be terrible and really the overall goal of the movie is to divide it seems people the overall goal of this movie seemed to divide men and women for no reason and and i'm not just saying this based on this subliminal messaging this movie was trying to do it it wasn't subliminal at all the entire movie was a pink and blonde filled utopia visually with with a goal of 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 making you I don't know, of making you feel bad about everything. And I don't know what it is, but you go and you you know a real you go see it, you'll know a real a real review on this when you see it. I promise. I've seen some reviews on this. I can't understand where anybody's getting this from. I like all different types of everything, music, movies, everything. And I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. I don't care about that. If it's done well, I I love it. What this movie was, and I don't know if anybody else in here has seen this, but Don't Worry Darling, that came out a couple months ago or a while ago. It was with uh, Harry Styles and Florence Pugh or whatever. That movie was like, Barbie tried to be that movie, but it was just so, 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 so bad. Uh, Don't Worry Darling was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Loved it. Barbie tried to paint a similar similar landscape where it was trying to be this different world and how it's differentiating from the real world, except none of it even made any sense. Like, that's the other thing. Not only was the movie just so bad and so preachy and so, like, just angry. The movie was angry. I don't know who wrote this thing. They were just angry people. They made all human beings in this movie just look terrible. It made it seem like there's nothing to this movie. For, for This is what it made it seem like. They basically said, if you're a man, you're just an idiot. You're, you're dumber than shit if you're a man, no matter what. And also, because you're a man, you um, if you're in charge of anything, you're immediately going to be destructive. And... Because of that, you are also immediately going to be demeaning to women, no matter what. And then with women, it was like they were basically trying to say that uh, you shouldn't want to. It was basically you shouldn't aspire to be anything other than just mediocre, right? Like, I don't even know how else to describe it. The goal was like, don't try to be uh, overly successful. Just try to be... I don't know. I, I, I don't even know, man. I don't even know. 
what was that? There was one angle where it tried to make it seem as though women should just be happy with be with doing nothing. Well, on the other hand, it was also trying to say that um, women should be doing everything. It, it, it like lost its identity. Either way, though, it, it basically just tried to tell you that the current planet Earth is the worst place on the planet. Barbie land is the best place on the planet. And when you come to Earth, when they come, when you come to Earth compared to Barbie land, that Earth is essentially a hellscape with no redeeming qualities, with nothing good on this planet. Nothing. There's nothing good about it. This movie's not for kids. I would never bring like my niece to see this movie. I don't know who this movie's for. I'm looking at my girlfriend just sitting over here because she's just shaking her head. Because we 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 sat. It, it it takes a lot for me to feel like this. We sat there after that movie and we were just like, I cannot fathom how bad that was. There were people in the middle of it, like freaking out. I heard one. The guy next to me was like, I can't do this anymore. He t- he looked at his girlfriend. He goes, I. He goes, I can't do this anymore. I got to get out of here. This is unbelievable. Guy in front of me passed out. I mean, sawing logs, snoring. It just seemed cheap. It seemed, uh, I just, once again, I don't know who this is for. It's not for kids. I don't think it's for anybody. Yeah, I think it seems like it's becoming a movie that people are scared to say they don't like. I don't understand why anybody would feel that way because there's nothing about the movie to like. There was nothing good. The only thing about that movie that I walked away from and said I kind of, I kind of, that was okay with was Kate McKinnon's in it. The lady, she's from SNL. She played, uh, she's done a million different things on, on SNL. Yeah. She played a weird Barbie. She played like the Barbie that if you were a, like, say you were a girl and you had a brother, she played the Barbie that like the brother came in and cut all the things hair off type thing. And she was pretty funny. She had a couple of one-liners that were good. But overall, like the, the entirety of the movie was just so bad. Um, it was, I, I can't stop telling everybody about how bad it was. I, I feel like I need to talk to just anybody who will listen about how bad this movie was. And the shame of it all is that the way that they market the movie and the way they kind of put it out there, they just make it seem like it's a fun movie to go and see and have a good time and get out of there. And that was the, it, it's not. There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing good about it. Yeah, like Carol, my girlfriend's saying she saw people that said they cried at the ending. I, I don't even know how that would be remotely possible. Um, I don't know. I would love for anybody in here tonight to what, what are we doing here? Okay, so here's a perfect example. So there's this girl. This is a perfect example. We were talking about this earlier with like the Dave Matthews and, and the Bills and stuff. There's this girl here on TikTok. Who's just saying, I didn't really like the Barbie movie. And there's people just destroying her for it. So it seems like it's one of these movies where either you you just completely, I don't know, what is it? Adopt the mindset they're trying to put out there, which is like, I'm guessing the people who love this movie, they, they hate people. No, but it's not just men. Like it, The movie made it seem like you just, everybody's awful. Like everybody. 
with no ability to change. Yeah. I know it looks bad. It looks bad because I'm a guy talking about this, and the movie really just was all about how awful men were. And I guess me talking about this makes it seem like, oh, I'm so offended. No, no I like I the the um the don't worry worry darling movie was like that, and I loved that movie. Same idea. Yeah, that movie was all about how you know men, whatever. Yeah, so well done. I thought it was terrific. It, uh, twist turns movie was great. This movie, like. Well, how Ryan Gosling, for example, signed up for this movie, I'll never know. He, he just basically went out there and played a doofus for two hours. They threw Ryan Gosling out there and said, hey, just be an, an idiot that nobody likes or respects for two hours. And then at the end, not to give anything away because I'm, I'm not really giving anything away, but at the end, just like there's no – nothing comes of it. Nothing comes of it for anybody in this whole thing. Like there's no, there's no story. There's just no story here. And they force, like, so many different types of storylines throughout it that don't make any sense. Will Ferrell's a CEO for some reason. They don't even need that part of the story in there, yet they force it, like, three different times. Uh, the acting is horrendous. I'm, that's the other thing on top of it. Like, not only is it just bad, the actor, the acting is just is so bad. And then on top of it all, you don't even know whether this movie is, like, a musical uh, a, a drama, a comedy. I mean, there was one point in the movie where they made like 12 straight jerking off innuendos. And it's like this, but this movie wasn't that. Like they, there was there was like a full two minutes straight of them just making fun of, of, the, of saying uh, we're going to have a beach off, but they made it sound like they said beating off. And they and they just kept going back and forth, and, and you're not. But it wasn't funny. You're just like, oh, this is. I don't. I don't like this. No, I would. I couldn't imagine a kid. No kids walking out of that being like, wow, that was. Um, wow, I love Barbie. It was more like, mom, like, can we go get ice cream during the middle of this? This is terrible. Yeah. It's not a kid's movie at all. I don't know what it's for. Who's it for? I don't know. Certainly wasn't for me, my girlfriend, anybody I've talked to. I don't know. I don't know. The other thing that I thought was wild, too, about this movie is, I mean, we all know Margot Robbie is like the one of the most incredible-looking women ever. Gorgeous. Just an unbelievable, unbelievably gorgeous woman. And there's a large chunk of this movie where she tries to pan it, pawn it off like she is ugly. And you're just sitting there and you're like, they're like, they're like insulting you almost. They're like, we want you to buy this. And even at one point, there's a, there's a narrator that comes in like, and she's British. She's like, Margot Robbie probably wasn't the right person to cast for this role to be able to express this sentiment or something like that. That's literally what she said, right? Yeah. Like, Margot Robbie's like, I just, I'm so ugly. And you're like, why? Like, what? And then this and then this narrator comes on and was like, Margot Robbie, we know she's not ugly. You know she's not ugly, but we're going to have her say it anyways. And then you're like, okay. And then you're watching and you're like, well, okay, but what was the point of it all? Because we all, like, What? What? 
Oh, my God, it was so bad. It was so bad. Dave's coming in here. He's saying, so you're saying you wouldn't see it again. I would see it again. Here's why I want to see it again. I want to remember just how bad this was. I want to go through and with a pen and paper write down everything that I hated about this. By the time I was done, I'd fill up an entire college ruled notebook on it. And it was from beginning to end. It wasn't like it came out of the gates hot and lost its luster. It wasn't like it started bad and had some good times in the beginning, in the middle. No magic. No magic. Um, I, I, I just, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. It could have been, it could have been great. It could have just been fun and whatever. Absolutely. No, absolutely, of course. You, we can't be, keep doing this, though, because you're so far away that when I'm, when I'm not talking and I'm listening to you, no one can hear anything. It looks like I'm just looking at the wall. Yeah. Which is, a, you'd be better off looking at the wall than the Barbie movie. But I do need to see it again ASAP. And the reason for that is because I need to jog my memory about just about this abomination. This will be this is this is a classic timepiece, a relic. This will be a relic in the history of American cinema, I think. When we look back and we will say, "Wow, how did we let him get away with this?" <laughs> and you want to know what's the biggest crime here? They robbed like two hundred million dollars at the box office this past weekend too. The stock market's through the roof. Mattel's stock's like the highest it's been in months. AMC stock was up 40% today. And it's like, for what? For a big ruse. It was a rug pull. It was a big rug pull. Every one of I mean, it was a gigantic rug pull. I went in there, and it wasn't like I walked in there like, oh, I'm not seeing the Bobby movie. I'm a man. I was excited. Yeah, I was more excited than you were. Like, I don't understand if it was like, oh. Barbies for a little girl. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, I'm not seeing that. I'm above it. I'm going to go see Oppenheimer by myself. Twice. Yeah, like, I was wide open to it. Like, first of all, if you're not going to see Barbie because it's about a dollar or whatever, like, like that's just stupid. Like, whatever. I, I had nothing to do with it. I was excited about the movie because it had a good cast, and Barbie's one of the most iconic figures ever in the history of of. Intellectual property. Barbie's one of the biggest ever. It's iconic. Of course I wanted to go see it. Margaret Roby's great, and I thought it would be cool to see how they did it, whatever. And, of course, you're expecting, like, a, like a, a heartwarming story and, you know, kind of just cringy-type laughs because it's, you know, trying to stretch the middle ground there between kids and adults and whatever. I get all that. So I was expecting all that. No, what I wasn't expecting was just this this intense like it was almost like you will you, you will you will believe this you will you will um like you will feel this way you will feel this way about x y and z there's no general like everything was a generality like it, it made everything certain about every group of people it seemed like yeah yes this was a, this is a perfect example of like this is a perfect example of how bad this movie was, okay? And it's a perfect example of what? Yeah, this is a perfect example of what they were trying to portray. And 
And it's a perfect example of just like how bad this movie truly was, like how tone deaf this thing I thought was, based on how like I think I think what they wanted to do in this movie, they wanted to of course express, you know, what it's like to be a woman and what it's like to be a woman who's trying to be, you know, successful woman, which is a great I think that's a great storyline for a movie that's probably going to be seen by kids and whatever. And and ultimately, when you're having movies like this, when you're doing movies like this. It's supposed to be a feel-good for kids, right? An inspiring movie for kids and a feel-good for adults. It's, that's usually the best way to to combine whatever you're looking to, to get out of a movie when you're making a movie not specifically dedicated to either adults or kids, but both, right? So that was the goal. What it wound up being instead was a complete smear campaign on all men in general and then a complete... Um, I just don't even know what else to say. Like, it, it, just a complete smear campaign on the human ability to be able to interact with one another and be kind. It, like, it, it essentially said to you that nobody is capable of actually being a good person in this world. Nobody. Yeah, it was essentially saying unless you are Barbie, you can't be a good person. And nothing about you is good if you're a certain type of person. Right. Like, yes. So, perfect example of this. Like, the movie, irrefutably, I don't even know how you could argue against this. The movie 100% tries to tell you as bluntly as possible that men are just awful. Men are just, they're terrible human, they're every, they're terrible. There is nothing about men that are remotely even close to redeeming. There is nothing about men that are worthy of being involved in anything, any capacity of anything. And first of all, if you're a man who thinks this about women, you're, you're, you're you're an idiot. No, no, I don't even. Big, yeah, but idiots think that way. But there's idiots who think about things about everybody. Idiots on no matter what you are, gender, creed, whatever. You're idiots who think generalities about everybody. There is no intelligent man on the planet who doesn't think that there are women who can do an infinite amount of amazing things, right? Just as there aren't, there's any intelligent woman thinks the same about a man and vice versa. Any intelligent person looks at at the at the playing field and says. Like you have a belief, you have a belief in mankind in itself to be able to do good things or whatever, right? You don't exclude, you don't limit it based on whatever. But as we know in this world, there are plenty of people who do that, unfortunately, right? But this movie, it makes it seem like it is the majority, not the minority. Like it makes it seem like everybody, every guy on the planet's main goal in life is to ruin the lives of women, tear them down at all costs, make them absolutely worthless, and and the women should just be okay with that. Like, that's what it made it seem like. And it's and as a guy, it was uncomfortable to watch because you're like, you're like, I, who's like, I'm trying to think about, I'm trying to think about somebody in my life who's like this. Like, they're making it seem like all men are like this, and I'm like, I don't know a single male in my life who's like this. <laughs> So there's one scene in the movie where as soon as she gets to the real world or whatever, quote unquote, 
It's broad daylight, broad daylight in the middle of California. We're talking like middle of the day, sun's beaming. There's people everywhere, everywhere. Barbie's with Ken, okay? She's on the beach. And I'm talking like this is mere seconds or minutes into being in the real world. In broad daylight, in public, on a public beach in front of thousands of people, this guy runs up to Barbie as fast as he can and full-on smacks her ass. And it seemed like the goal of that was to seem like you on Amer- in, in the in the in America expect if you're a woman to get to get your ass smacked. Like, I, I was like I, that was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Who does this? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, it was it was uncomfortable. If you're wondering what's going on here, I'm just talking about my. The thoughts I had to close the show as we're almost at three hours. I'm just giving my thoughts on Barbie because it was just, I thought it was an abomination. I just thought it was an absolute um, stain on our, on, our, on, our, on our culture. I really, I don't even know what else to put. The most profound thing you can think of when it comes to criticizing um, a form of, of media, uh, insert it. Uh, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I can't get over it. I can't get over that. That was really that was real. They had such an opportunity to do something really cool there and something good, I think. And I just don't know what they did other than, man, they really they really pissed on the the, the Barbie IP though. I feel like it just it didn't it didn't make them look good. That was the other weird thing too. If you loved it, I wonder what what it is that you. I'd love to know what you loved about it. Because even if you loved the whatever they were trying to. Like, even if you left there and you're like, I love the fact that they make it seem like any man in the history of the world is a piece of shit. And they also make it seem like um, the entire world itself, like like the world that we live in, is just a dump. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too. Right. So my girlfriend's saying, as a guy, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, all right, maybe me and my girlfriend have different perspectives on this, whatever. So I let her go first afterward, and and she, it was like that. I'm glad I did that because dead on, we were both aligned. So from the female and your sister saw it as well, felt the exact same way before we even said anything. So just from our our small sample size here, though, the the female um, perspective, the male perspective, it was dead. It was identical. It was just, it was just bad. Like, we, we're all about doing whatever you want to do message-wise, but it was a bad movie. Yeah, it was just so exa- it was so exaggerated. I'm, I'm willing to see anything. I'm willing to listen to anything you want to, like, portray or whatever. If you do it in a fun, cool way or in an entertaining way, I'm always open for it. I love stuff like that. Makes you think about the other side or makes you put yourself in somebody else's shoes, stuff like that. I love that. This wasn't that. This was a lecture... This was a lecture hidden behind a pink background or a pink foreground. Um, and I don't necessarily know who it was for. I don't know what, who the lay were lecturing to. It just felt like it was somebody really mad or a group of writers really mad that wanted to get together and just make a hate piece and, and, and dump it off as uh, to Warner Brothers and make them say, hey, we're making this... Uh, we're making a movie about the most iconic toy ever, and we want to make it heartfelt and uh, and fun, loving for the whole family. And you get there, and you're like, 
Like, I, I would love to know what a kid. I would know what a love to know what a kid thought about that movie. You know you're right coming here. He's saying they he's saying they're going to clear 255 million, and you're right. No, that is that is ultimately all they care about. Um, for sure, for sure. Uh, Joe Mannix coming here. He's saying a Red Rod Tomatoes review. They gave it an A plus. Yeah, see that's what's killing me too. That's what's killing me. I know, and I and it's funny because it's funny. All the real reviews that I've seen that aren't absolutely sucking this movie's ass, they all seem like. They are coming from the exact same like perspective as everybody else, where it's like, "Hey, you know, we're all about whatever the overlying theme of a movie is." As just, it, it, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it, and this just felt like a, yeah, I, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, and 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 not for nothing. It wasn't just like the the uh, the the desire to cram this ideology or whatever down your throat. It was also like I mentioned, there were like three different musical numbers in this movie that just it didn't make any sense. All of a sudden in the movie, they would bust out into like a twelve minute song and dance, and then by the time it ended, you're like, well, that didn't advance the plot at all. What the, what is this? There was like a 12 minute scene where it's just this choreographed dance about being Ken. And you can't tell if it's good or bad to be Ken. <laughs> and then Michael Sarah in the movie, he was just a, he was just a human like punching bag. Alan. Alan. The guy in the Barbie, the guy in Barbie, uh, who's not Ken and not Barbie, they just would make fun of him the whole time, and it was like, well, where, where's his? Well, who's feeling bad for for Alan? What's about poor Alan over here? He's getting he's getting destroyed. They're tearing this poor guy apart. And then the whole goal of the movie was to make it was for at the end. I, I'm not even. I'm not even gonna give it away. Ghost. I I can't. I can't. No, I know you don't care. There's no way you're going to see this. I, I highly recommend you do, though. I need I need to hear from people. I need to hear. Even if you liked it, I'd love to hear from you if you liked it, especially. If you liked it, I just want to know why, what you liked about it. Like, Because if I, if I hear from you, like a gen, if I hear from someone who liked it and they had a genuine reason for liking it, I'll hear them out. I just don't know. I can't think of what that would be. Like, usually I'm pretty good at thinking, oh, I could see how somebody would like that. It's just not for me. I don't see that here. It just, I think it, I think it thought it was really clever and it just wasn't the what? Oh my God. That was unbelievable. I don't know. It also ripped on itself a lot, and I think it was trying to be funny in that way, but it was really treading the line between trying to be funny and then trying to be really serious and then also trying to be really um, informative in a way. Like, it was trying to be really, um, 
it was like trying to be revolutionary in a way I'd seen like where they were trying to like get this big message across while also being serious and funny and musically oriented. I mean, wow. I just don't even know. All I had to say is I've spent too long on this already. Um, go see it. And if you do, shoot me a DM on Twitter at Zbot Tweets. Let me know what your thoughts were. I just I thought it was the worst movie ever made, and I can't wait to see it again uh, to jog my memory about just how bad it truly was. Um, because I need, I think I think that was one of those experiences that was so bad that I need to truly go back and and realize just how bad it was. Yeah, um, and go see Oppenheimer too. That was real good. I enjoyed Oppenheimer. Um, and I enjoyed you guys hanging out with me tonight. Above all. Thanks for letting me rant about Barbie at the end of the show. I got the first two and a half hours out of the way. I figured I'd save the ending for the little Barbie dump. I don't know. God, that was so bad. I'm going to be thinking about this for some time. Some time. And I, 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 it's going to be one of those things as well where if, if I ask you if you saw it, if we're out, right? And I said, you see Barbie? You say yeah, I and mean, we're—I got you cornered all night. We're gonna be going on about this movie. Everything about it was so bad. Everything about it was so bad. It was terrible. It was the worst movie. It was just so bad. I'm gonna go see it again right now. I'll talk to you guys later. I'll see you next week. Camp will officially be in uh, in play next week. We'll talk about it then. Until then, I'll see you next Monday night. Enjoy the rest of your week. Go see Barbie. Let me know how it is. Go Bills. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.